was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. Hello, cats and kittens, guys and dolls. And welcome back to another episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray. And today on Bad Faith Podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking to Harper's uh, Magazine's DC editor, Andrew Coburn. Don't mispronounce that last name, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Um, Andrew Coburn is the author of a book I think a lot of you probably had read. I saw a lot of the comments on the Patreon account indicating that a lot of you were already familiar and had read the book that came out last um, last fall. So it was extremely well-timed, and there's a whole section on the events in Ukraine, really timely. It's called The Spoils of War, How Profits Define Success. Uh, no, that's not at all what it's called. Um, that's the name of an Intercept article about it. It's called The Spoils of War. Um, da, 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 da. Oh, Jesus Christ. You know what it's called. I forget what the part of the colon is, but it's about... Uh, war profiteering and all of the things. And I had the pleasure of speaking with him for about an hour about it. If you are not already a subscriber, you should go ahead over to patreon.com slash bad faith podcast and change your mind. If I sound like I'm out of breath, let me confess it's because I am. I ill-timed a run so that I just sprinted back into my apartment to start this back up. (laughs) So my apologies while I get myself in order. Let me go ahead and play a clip from the episode as I want to do, and then we can get right into answering your questions mention any of this to question the extent to which this is a is a conflict being fueled by um, energy interests or the military industrial complex or you know any of the obvious red flags that are going off it's a bizarre situation to be in to have to feel like you still tiptoe around these sorts of issues i wonder what you make of the current media climate and as you reflect on the extent to which the military industrial complex is a driver. What do you make of living in a world where, uh, you know, Lloyd Austin is a former Raytheon uh, executive, you know what I mean? And now the secretary of defense. I mean, it feels like the more things change, the more they stay the same. And yet there's no public outcry about that. There's no public outcry about what it means for someone like Victoria Nuland to have such a successful career under so many administrations that are perceived from the outside of being so radically different, you know, from, from Clinton to being Cheney's national security advisor to uh, Hillary's spokesperson under Obama to the assistant secretary of state for your, like, this is, this is a, it's, it all seems so incredible. It almost feels weird to be talking about it in the kind of these muted matter of fact terms right now with you. Well, I agree. I mean, uh, I was thinking, Thinking uh, the other day, I was thinking, um, you know, President, President Eisenhower talked about, made his famous speech about the military-industrial complex. If he'd made it today, wouldn't he get banned from Twitter for saying that? I'm sure he would. <laughs> 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 I mean, he'd be gone, and Facebook, <clears throat> and the editorials in the New York Times denounce him. Yes, it's very, it's very, distor- gaslighting is a good word. I mean, it's really, 
enough to drive drive one crazy because, mm-hmm. you know, then it then you find you obviously don't want to get on a slippery slope of saying, oh, well, Putin was justified, which, he, you know, absolutely wasn't. But I, I there's another point about it, you know, thinking in terms of slogans. I mean, that's what we were reduced to. Everyone, you know, you're only allowed to sort of utter slogans, a particular set of slogans. And if you, you know, and that's that's the extent of what you're, to which you're allowed to think. So you really can't, it's very hard to figure out what's going on or, you know, why we're in this position and maybe we shouldn't, certain things we should maybe think about and retain and so as to not do them again. What I'm asking for is people actually think clearly about, you know, why what is happening? Why did Putin do this? Why have we taken the positions we are, uh, we are taking? Um, and then, you know, that you, that's the only way to understand things and to adopt, you know, reasonable policies. But as I said, we're all being reduced to chanting slogans. All right. I see Kush is up first. What's on your mind this evening? Good evening, Brianna. It's afternoon for for me here in the Pacific time. I hope your run was nice. Uh, It's a pleasure to be in dialogue with you. As always, what were your thoughts this evening? Well, my thoughts were that the topic uh, of your uh, calling is uh, quite pertinent. And the nuclear options, uh, I think the possibility of nuclear holocaust is not something that should be viewed lightly, given that the U.S. um, and the Soviet Union uh, brought the world to the brink of thermonuclear destruction uh, about 60 years ago. In fact, Mm. the anniversary is coming up uh, this October um, of 2022. It'd be 60 years. Literally one person saved the planet from blowing up, Vasily Arkhipov. I don't know how familiar you are with it or not, but if you watched... Oliver Stone's documentary series, The Untold History of the U.S., you'd see that on the B-59 Soviet submarine, uh, the policy was that all three officers had to agree to send off a nuke, uh, nuclear missile, and they lost contact with what the others. And so uh, the other two officers on board thought that the nuclear holocaust already started, and they mm-hmm. wanted to send out a missile. And then, of course, the U.S. would have retaliated, and the world would have been blown up, and you and I wouldn't have existed. Vasily Arkhipov had the judiciousness and the cautiousness to say, no, 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 let's not rush to any hasty conclusions. And um, he deserves a lot of credit, I think, as an individual to do so. So I think this is a very important topic for those reasons. I would say, furthermore, the U.S. has to play an enormous role in de-escalating nuclear weapon holdings throughout the world. Of course, some of the U.S.'s close allies own nuclear weapons, and the U.S. is the only country to heinously and egregiously use them on precious civilian populations in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we know that Truman was a racist, and we know that he harbored those feelings of racism, and racism allows dehumanization that allows the slaughter of children and precious mothers and fathers. And uh, whether it was to black people or Chinese people or Japanese people, he wrote in a letter to his wife, the, the negative sentiments of racism that he harbored. And we know furthermore that nuclear weapons should have never been used because they weren't even military, militarily necessary. So many admirals and generals of that time said there was no military need for it, no strategic need for it, whether that was Douglas MacArthur or Dwight Eisenhower, both generals, or Admiral William Leahy. There are a bunch of generals, General Henry Arnold. You could look through. They, many of them said there was no need. In fact, the Soviet Union started its invasion, literally, if I'm not mistaken, like a minute or two after midnight on August 9th, 1945. And the U.S. rushed that second nuke in just like that morning thereafter, like 11 a.m. or something like that, if I'm not mistaken, on August 9th of 1945. Mm-hmm. And this is trans time, if I'm not mistaken, and the local time there. 
And so there was no need for it at all. And then so much of the narrative, so much of what I learned as a kid in school was that well, there was no choice. The Japanese wouldn't have surrendered. That's not true at all. That's mm-hmm. not true at all. If you look at Peter Kuznick's reporting on it, he's a historian. He worked with Oliver Stone on it. You can see so much documentation about how the Japanese were let, literally willing to surrender. It was just the U.S. didn't want favorable terms that would have benefited the Soviet Union as well. Um, and if you look at the reporting on it, it's that they were willing, once be prior to the nukes being dropped, the Japanese would have gladly accepted. Um, there's a quote from uh, one of Peter, uh, Peter Kuznick's reports, and I can include on this and love to hear your uh, feedback on this, Brianna, is that uh, in, in page five of 23 of one article that Peter Kuznick put out, it says, quote, General Douglas MacArthur told former President Herbert Hoover that if Truman had acted upon Hoover's May 30, 1945 memo and changed the surrender terms, the war would have ended months earlier. Uh, that the Japanese would have accepted it and gladly he averred or avert. I'm not sure how to pronounce that word. I have no doubt. Hoover believed the Japanese would have negotiated as early as February of 1945. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Brianna. Yeah, I think that's that's really that's really germane to the why I want to do this episode. So the the real reason that motivated it was that I was in a conversation with a lot of people <clears throat> at an event who were all experts in this area, foreign policy experts generally left, although there was some ideological ideological diversity. And it was a long, many hours conversation. And I was, you know, I kept silent because I'm not a foreign policy expert and was listening and learning. And early in the conversation, there had been a bunch of kind of like lighthearted humor about, <laughs> you know, kind of uh, gallows humor about, oh, are we in the blast zone right now? Like what happens if they drop a nuke, a nuke on the White House? LOLs. And then hours later, we come to the conversation about what it would take to end the conflict and the idea that negotiation, you know, what what do they say about compromise? If both people aren't unhappy, then it's not a fair agreement. (laughs) And, you know, so we're talking it through and several things come up, including, you know, that would be concessions that Putin would need or want, a, a variety of them. And the response from the room was kind of universally, oh, we can't do that. Oh, that's unacceptable. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes it would be, oh, because look at all the people that live in those areas that we would be conceding, we, LOL. But that would be conceded to, you know, Russia. Look at this, that, and the other. And I had to say something because mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I don't disagree. It's all very terrible. But two seconds ago, two hours ago, you were joking, not joking about the possibility of a nuclear holocaust. And suddenly – you're weighing, it doesn't seem like you're weighing proportionately what could be lost by not coming to one of these unsavory agreements. I have no interest in, you know, an act of aggression and imperialism resulting, resulting in land gains or any yeah. other kind of negotiated benefit for Russia. I have no investment in that. But yeah. I do, as a voting citizen and the only nuclear power that's ever used one, have a deep interest in not getting to the point of nuclear war. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And it it was just so interesting to me in the room how quickly the genuine threat that loomed was dismissed over things that felt more proximate and and visceral and perhaps easier to put your brain around, like, you know, the human beings that live in these disputed regions, being members of one country or another, subject to one regime or another, which is real. Like, it's not not real, but it just was really – it's really galling to me the way that people have – even very smart, good, informed people have taken to talking about – the threat of nuclear war. So I really appreciate the historical perspective from you, Kusha. It's a great pleasure. And, and I say that because you and I are both in the blast zone. You're in the East Coast blast zone. I'm in a West Coast blast zone. That 
if it got to that point, I know like the cities we're in are definitely like the first step for it. And I think that one can never underestimate the type of hubris or um, calculation that leads to such awful moves from either side. Like if you just look back at what Mao Zedong was saying, he's, he was so ashamed that Khrushchev de-escalated back during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, I don't know if you were familiar with that or not, but that's how it was like how the Albanians also felt uh, under Enver Hoxha. They were, and Khrushchev said uh, he, was re- he, he was reviled by them afterwards. And all he agreed was basically like, okay, um, if the U.S. says they're not going to overthrow the Cuban government, we'll remove the missiles. And, you know, there was a backdoor deal. The U.S. did the same thing, uh, moved missiles out of Turkey and so on. But this is something that needs to be confronted against all the power brokers. And, of course, Israel is a big threat as well. And this is a big crisis in, in the Middle East right now about the Islamic Republic of Iran having nuclear weapons. And I, I know Noam Chomsky's position is that if you want to denuclearize the Middle East, start by denuclearizing Israel. And, of course, that starts with the U.S. making the decision to denuclearize mm-hmm. itself and Israel. Because, as we know from Mordecai Vanunu, the Israeli whistleblower, they have, like, tens, if not hundreds, of uh, nuclear weapons. And, you know, no one wants a nuclear holocaust anywhere, whether that's India and Pakistan, whether that's Israel and there's on uh, Israel and Iran or U.S. and Russia. No one wants that. So I think it's very important that you raise this discussion. I really thank you for doing that. Thank you, Kusha. <clears throat> While you were talking, it occurred to me that we kind of say nuclear holocaust. I mean, I've heard people talk and I read some of the comments in the YouTube video <clears throat> of the free clip that I posted. And I was really surprised there as well, because people <clears throat> one woman said something like, you know, nobody wants nuclear holocaust, but like maybe it'll be a good reset for us and a time for us to take a step back. And I'm like, what? What, lady? <laughs> what do you mean? It's not a reset. It's not a vacay. It's not a deep breath and a oosah. It could be the end of civilization. What are you talking about? And so I think it is. I think that people really do think that oh, it'll be a bomb over there, not over here. It's not going to affect me. Maybe it won't hit me. Because I, I had this conversation very early on in this whole Ukraine Russia crisis, <clears throat> where I was talking to producer Ben, who has a background mm-hmm. in like East Asian studies. You know, he has like I don't know. I'm not going to blow up his spot, but he he has like a master's in things. Mm-hmm. And I and I spent a lot of time in the region and I and I I was asking him we were going like plotting through what the nuclear volleys look like and he's like okay well here's what the map looks like for a preemptive attack here's what it looks like for a defensive attack and even in my own mind I imagined okay they aim at whatever New York LA Chicago or maybe they're aiming at mm-hmm. you know wherever in the Mojave desert the nukes are or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, but he's like no no no, it's like shows me that like multiple multiple bombs in each state <laughs> and the effect being okay let me just i pulled up the wikipedia page i'm sorry this is not like deep research but just no, no to concept, some conceptualize for everybody right yeah. now as we get into this conversation here's how the entry for nuclear holocaust starts a nuclear holocaust is a theoretical scenario where the mass detonation of nuclear weapons causes globally widespread destruction and radioactive fallout Such a scenario envisages large parts of the Earth becoming uninhabitable due to the effects of nuclear warfare, potentially causing the collapse of civilization and, in the worst case, (laughs) collapse of civilization isn't the worst case, lol, extinction of humanity and or termination of life on Earth. Besides the immediate destruction of cities by nuclear blasts, the potential aftermath of nuclear war could involve firestorms, a nuclear winter, widespread radiation sickness from fallout, and or the temporary, if not permanent, loss of much modern technology due to electromagnetic pulses. Some scientists, such as Alan Roebuck, have speculated that a thermonuclear war could result in the end of modern civilization on Earth, in part due to a long-lasting nuclear winter. 
In one model, the average temperature of Earth following a full thermonuclear war falls for several years by 7 to 8 degrees Celsius. That's 13 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. You know, I think, was it, who was it who said that if World War Three is fought, then World War Four is going to be fought with bows and arrows. Yeah, yeah, bows and arrows or sticks. Because it's so true. I, I don't know how fearful you were, but when I, because I was working with uh, one of the professors I help out, and um, we were talking about some uh, assignments for students, and all of a sudden he was telling me while we were on the call that the Ukrainian power plant was on fire. I don't know what was going through your mind, but that was one of the most um, uh, intim- uh, you know, severe um, moments I of information news I'd ever heard just like a week or two ago. Because mm-hmm. as far as the reporting was coming out, it was that the blast was going to be ten times that of what the Chernobyl incident was in the 1980s. Of course, that was one large factor in bankrupting the Soviet Union. So was the Afghanistan intervention, among many other things. Of course, all the money they spent on nuclear weapons and and all that, much, much other. But of course, that's just one section of it is the fact that much of Europe was going to be devastated if it actually happened. And of course, you know, when it comes to wartime reporting, wartime information, one has to be, I don't know, significantly more uh, critical of what's coming their way because uh, both parties in war, the power brokers of war are going to manipulate information to their benefit. But I think what really comes to my mind when you mention like nuclear holocaust. And when we mentioned like the uh, the military budget, how much was it like seven hundred seventy billion plus dollars is supposed to go to at this time around mm-hmm. or what have you? That I was I remember there's a CNN article I found that in 2020 the article says the U.S. spent thirty five point four billion dollars on nuclear weapons last year, and so that meant in 2019. It's just absurd to me how so much can go to nuclear weapons. We can save so much money, so many so many fears. Um, just by reducing them. And look, the U.S. has thousands. You know, it's, I, I don't understand this. Like if yeah. the U.S. reduces its thousands to hundreds, they still have the mutually assured destruction that they yeah. so love. So what, why is that so difficult to even carry out? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and to that point, I think people really should read this book because there was so much more than we were able to get into. Again, it's called The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. There's a whole section on Obama's like denuclearized, nuclearized, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, taking some nukes and putting them away <laughs> and how that was like nothing. It was more a, a, like a, a, press, a press moment, but how there was so much like public interest in it at the time and how fickle our attention is, our public attention is. And it does feel like everyone paying, you know, there's one part of me that's like, it's annoying. It's, it's, it's frustrating. It's disheartening to see so many people focused on Ukraine that are um, indifferent to so many other conflicts around the world where people are similarly, if not, you know, or more so being victimized and terrorized um, at the influence of the U S government in particular, Mm -hmm. but it's also a bit of an opportunity potentially while everybody's looking at the prize to make some points that need to be made throughout. And it has been very disheartening for me to see some leftists engaging in this casual conversation about nuclear um, Holocaust and nuclear winter, because if we're not, if we aren't taking this moment to really remind everybody what's at stake, then I don't, I don't know what there is. Um, But thank you so much for, um, for calling in today, Kusha. It was a joy. Um, Thank you very much for having me as always. All righty. Who is up next? Tom, what's on your mind? 
Hello, how are you? I'm doing well, Tom. It's been a while. I spoke to you a, lot, a while before about, uh, we were talking about the PMC class and, mm. the, uh, you know, the electoral politics and things like that. Lighter fare, better days. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I thought about it a lot. And, and now I'm thinking about I mean, this whole crisis. I'm just kind of thinking about the political ramifications the political motivations of the people in charge who, who kind of maybe allowed this to happen or didn't negotiate a better peace or push a peace or try to, you know, warn the world that we need to actually stop this. It, I, the way I look at it is it's just, I don't understand. I don't understand the political calculus that the Biden administration or anybody made on this. I don't think that, you know, yesterday I was on the Aaron Matei's call in and he seemed to think that, you know, this is kind of like getting the whole gang back together. Mm-hmm. And Wait, you, what do you mean by that? Getting the whole gang back together? Like Victoria Newland and Blinken mm-hmm. and, and Biden in Ukraine, how he was like almost, the, you know, the head of the vassal state of Ukraine. And, you know, and I just don't to me, it's just like I just don't understand the politics. You know, I know that it maybe has nothing to do with politics, or obviously, but it maybe. There was nothing the United States could do to stop this, but I really don't believe that after everything I've read about it and listened to people talk about it. And I feel like that, you know, Russia made clear, clearly made, you know, it's argument about why it didn't like Ukraine being armed with, you know, sophisticated weapons and, you know, and having the violence in the eastern regions against Russian speaking people. And I just don't understand you know, I just don't think the left is doing a very good job. I mean, most of the people and the left or the PMC class now have a sunflower on their Twitter page and, you know, and blue and yellow flag. And uh, it, 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 I don't see any kind of movement of like, let's get out in the streets and, and protest this because we don't want to die in a nuclear war. I mean, to me, it's, it's just fundamental that we, just simple that we this can't be allowed to continue and that this could at any moment something awful could happen because we're talking about two nuclear powers and, and almost they're becoming in could become in direct conflict. And I just don't understand it from a fact, a point where there's, is it really where I've seen the military industrial complex throughout my life. I'm 54. I watched the first girl for second one. I mean, it was disgusting. And they, we, they talked about a peace dividend. We never got that. They, we just got more war. And we're always going to get more war until we confront them. And, literally, like in the streets, like George Floyd type protests. And we need that energy. And we need that energy from leaders. And we don't have it. And, and, I, and I don't see electoral politics helping that. I don't see anybody coming up and really mentioning this, using this as a focal point. To get people, you know, rallied around someone. I'm just terrified. Maybe that's basically what I'm saying. I'm terrified. Mm. I'm terrified for the future. I've never been this scared. Yeah, it certainly resonates with me. And and I want to validate that fear. Because, again, I I think you're right that there is not. Look, even if it's an infinitesimal chance, 1% chance is too much given the, the stakes. And when I was listening to... Coburn, both in our interview and as I was listening to the audiobook, I by the way, I wish I had the book in front of me and I would read you snippets, but because it was an audiobook, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> um, but there were sections about, you know, 
the people who, you know, that have to all be, you know, coordinated to push the button or whatever, he interviewed them about what the, you know, what they were thinking when Trump was president and how they thought about managing his temperament. And they were all like, oh, we were just fully prepared not to do it. We were just fully prepared to disobey orders, which is terrifying. I mean, it's it's perhaps reassuring when the valence is in that direction against pulling the trigger, pushing the button. But one could easily imagine it going the opposite direction. And the idea that anything is up to that level of caprice or the willful integrity of any given human being or, uh, you know, c- communication lines going down per Kusha's point is 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 terrifying. And I remember being younger and I feel like in the nineties, there was a lot more of like anti-war nukes are bad denuclearization. Like that felt like it was in the air a lot more than it is now. And it really does feel like, you know, talking to Coburn and about how there is this complete and total unitary kumbaya bipartisan support of all of these kind of military ventures and walking through someone like Victoria Newland's career trajectory and the bipartisan nature of it and looking at, Lloyd Austin and the Raytheon crew being appointed with not even a second of hesitation from the mainstream media. I mean, just not even the glimmer of pushback around appointing a Raytheon lobbyist to such a senior, you know, like just not even, just not even a flinch at it. Suggesting to me that we are so far behind the ball and things are so, so bad. And so you're asking basically why, how we got in the situation and what the political benefits of it are. I was listening to that, you know, um, John Mearsheimer video from 2015 that everyone rediscovered when this all popped off. And I listened to it, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And what he was saying is that the United States really underestimates the, you know, Russia's relationship with Ukraine and it perceived its own strategic so it's like it, he basically argued that Ukraine is of strategic value, not just political value to Russia. And so it just has more skin in the game in a way that America doesn't appreciate because it thinks it's doing kind of like the, that the cold world is over and it's just doing like vague power playness. And Russia's like, no, <laughs> this actually mattered. We're still we are still still invested in this in a way that you are not truly appreciating both as a strategic on a strategic basis, but also kind of this cultural basis. He puts it much better. Go watch the video. I'm sure you guys all have. I will. Right. I was actually had a. He did a thing with Ray McGovern about a week and a half ago too. Mm. Mm. You guys should all add him on. He does not on social media, but I sent him an email. But I'd love to have him on Bad Faith if you guys can get his attention. So who Ray? Well, no, no, no Mearsheimer. Oh, I should have Ray on too because I, I, I he's he's someone who's confronted you know powerful people many times in his life. You know. He confronted Rumsfeld. He confronted Hillary Clinton. You know, he confronted Adam Schiff. He's he's a, he's a great American, actually. I wish he, I'd love to see him more of him. On, but anyhow, sorry. Oh, I'm not I'm not familiar with him. But you should write. You don't know Ray McGovern? Him. No. Oh wow! You need to look him up. <laughs> That's just all I've got to say. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. <laughs> hey, doctor. What's on your mind? Can you hear me? I can. What's in your mind today? Uh, good evening. Um, I'm currently preoccupied at the moment, but I saw the call notification on my screen. I thought I could lift your spirits up quickly, if you, if I may. Look some what's up? I uh, lift your spirits up, given oh. the current time, if I may. I'm always happy so, for that. So, like a few weeks ago, I had a drunken adventure, and I randomly met this guy. Uh, we sparked up a conversation about improving camera gear with respect to 
video quality and your name suddenly came up and we were excited that both of us listened to you. Uh, we mainly appreciate that you articulate and are open to all strategies to move domestic policy forward, especially strategies that would disproportionately uplift black communities, which in our opinion is quite distinct amongst um, leftist podcaster. Uh, in my opinion, some leftist podcasters are seem to complacent with incrementalism. But anyway, um, we were like, uh, you know, you know, inebriated. We spoke at length at, um, <laughs> about how gorgeous you are and the extent to which your beautiful smile lights up a room. Um, um, and uh, we were um, like, we appreciate that, like you're like one of the most unique person um, among, amongst leftists and in, in those regards. But one of my favorite parts of the conversation was, um, hey, Paul, if you're listening, what's up? Um, he recognized my voice from one of the call-in episodes where we were discussing romantic interests mm-hmm. and how um, that my romantic interest was influenced by my childhood crush was Frizzle. Like he, uh, he generally <laughs> apparently enjoyed our back and forth dialogue and he pulled up the episode right in front of me and skipped <laughs> skipped skipped an exact um portion of the um of the because this this is the episode that you uh one of the episodes where you did a live stream mm-hmm. so he yeah he found it extremely entertaining and i didn't realize you know because i know I, when i listen to you and, uh, and other people like i i generally enjoy when people stay on topic and, and also enjoy when people go off topic. So, um, but anyway, all that to say is thank you for everything you're doing in the space, including linking randos and drunken adventures <laughs> and navigating this world. I really appreciate that doctor. As someone who, until this run, which I forced myself to do last minute, hadn't gone outside since Friday <laughs> and is really thirsty for those kinds of social interactions. I, it's nice to feel like I was vicariously out somewhere having a life this weekend. <laughs> Thanks yes. doc. You have a nice day. Keep the faith. All right, Jonathan. That was sweet. What's on your mind? Hi, Bray. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say before I get to my question that definitely don't feel bad about being a bit winded from your run. You're doing much better than I am. I don't think I've done (laughs) any real cardio in over two years now. So (laughs) definitely keep it up. Well, that was me. That was me until last January. I don't believe in scales, but I was at my friend's house and I hopped on hers and I was like, wow, these COVID developments are not part of my personal journey. (laughs) I started, (laughs) I started running every day since then, but very de minimis. The trick for me for beating my own negative self-thought and my own very powerful inertia is to say, Brianna, all you have to do is put the clothes on and then just run one mile, just the one. And if it's more, it's more once I get going, and then that's fine. But just the one, that's all you have to do. And that helps. That's an interesting motivational tip. I'll have to keep it in mind when I'm trying to motivate myself to (laughs) work out next time. But anyway, uh, my question for you is regarding um, near the end of the podcast when uh, you asked Coburn whether Putin would have made the same decisions that he did uh, these past couple months were at Trump in office. And that mm-hmm. got me wondering um, if you have any sort of speculation as someone who worked on Bernie's 2020 campaign, what it might be like if he were president now. Because I- I'm wondering if the media framing of the whole situation 
and the United States' response to the Russo-Ukraine conflict would be different um, very dramatically on a burning or if it wouldn't be. Because I, I remember, for one thing, this really insipid article the New York Times published a couple weeks, I think, before Super Tuesday, if I remember correctly, about how when Bernie was mayor of Burlington, Vermont, he was mm-hmm. looking for like a sister city in the Soviet Union or something. And that was, mm-hmm. it was all just had a lot of undercurrents of typical Russia gate nonsense from what I recall. But oh, yeah, I wonder fully, if... Yeah, after Nevada, there was a full-blown like five-day attempt to, to tie him to Putin. They got scared. Sorry, go ahead. I didn't interrupt. Oh, no, you're, you're all good. Um, yeah, I just, the last thing I had wanted to say was, I wonder if Bernie was, would respond, if he were responding less, um, with less sanctions or just generally less harshly than the Biden administration has, if the media would have been sort of casting aspersions on his his loyalty to the country or something like that. I can definitely imagine a situation where um, that, that would be leveraged to try and pressure him to act more um, more harshly than than Biden is or than, than he might have if he were president. That's such an interesting question. I, you know, you would like to, I mean, first of all, Bernie seems to have articulated a kind of wholesome agreement with how Biden is handling this. Frankly, most left, you know, that that conversation I was talking about earlier, everyone in the room, even if they are very critical of Biden, generally speaking, seem to agree that he was handling this the right way. Uh, obviously, I had Matt Dess on and he echoed that sentiment. I mean, that was many weeks ago now, but seems to think that Biden's handling the right way. So substantively, it doesn't I don't it's not clear to me what, if anything, Bernie would be doing differently. The question of how the media would receive it is a really interesting one and whether or not Bernie would be under greater pressure to do have do something harsher or, or be more hawkish in tone than Biden because of perceived alliances with Putin. And we'll be getting more jingoistic language than Biden is giving us because of those pressures. I'd like to think, no, that Bernie would just stand his ground and like suffer the slings and arrows, but try to have a measured tone and use this as an opportunity to talk about American foreign policy and other parts of the world. Um, but honestly, you know, you know, a lot of you push back against the way Matt does frame things and he, you know, acknowledged, but didn't emphasize the role of NATO expansion. And I wonder if it would be more, the, the issue would be more about how kind of maybe a little demoralized or frustrated the left would be at Bernie's response as much, if not more so than, the center's response to Bernie. I don't know. Yeah, it really does make me wonder because um, I I feel that every president that gets elected, they ultimately disappoint the coalition that put them in office in some way. And I wonder if we would be sitting here today as people who favored Bernie and if we would be disturbed by how he chose to um, respond to the Russian uh, Ukraine conflict, if we might be disappointed at a really hawkish response from him, more so than we might have expected from the way the candidate presented himself. But thank you very much for um, sort of entertaining that uh, that question that I had. 
Thank you, Jonathan. And let's see if the other callers have uh, thoughts and feelings about that, too. Everyone should feel free to weigh in on that hypothetical. What's on your mind today, Eric Gray? <laughs> um, uh, well, I'm looking, I'm looking at the question going, uh, is there any ethical circumstance for nuclear weapons? No. <laughs> Simple <laughs> answer. Um, but... Yeah. Yeah, it, what's... Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead before. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I was running this thought experiment. Like I'm the one with the finger on the button. And let's say Russia fully launched a nuke. It's not speculative. There's like 10 of them and, you know, uh, 30 million Americans are dead. I I don't know. Maybe that's too big a number, but like a lot of, it's horrible. Millions of Americans are dead. And I'm sitting there still with my finger on the button. I just, I really struggle with this because it's like, what, what, what is the, what is the principle that we're articulating that says I have to push this button tit for tat, an eye for an eye, like some old Testament stuff. Like, what is the principle? Like the damage is done. What, what, what is it? What's going to happen when I push this button? I push the button then they push another button and another 10,000 Americans die, 10 million Americans die. So so your hypothetical assumes that everything's already gone nuclear. No, no, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to imagine the consequence, like the, the context in which I, mean, I would feel like we should ever, ever launch a nuke, even if we were nuked. And I know that's a very, I know that's very radical and that most people think that you just have to, you got to do something. You got to, you got to retaliate. You got to show them that you're not going to stand for this. But like if the consequence of me showing them I'm not going to stand for this is nuclear holocaust and the whole planet is dead, I'm just really trying to figure out when I would ever ever launch a nuke but let's let's be real about that too like whose fault is it to begin with i mean who cares we're all dead i mean just saying like i i, I get that but like whose fault is it like it gee if the if like the united states hadn't started instigating shit or if if we would just leave other people alone would we even be in this situation well, t- help uh, me understand how that how that ties into the the um the question of whether and when to use a nuke. I'm saying there, there really shouldn't be a, my, I guess my point is that there shouldn't really be a time we ever have to do this. Like yeah. there, there should never be a time. And I think, if, I guess I think about it um, as um, Jesse Ventura put it one time, um, you go to war when politicians fail. So yeah, this, this would be at, in the most generous case, an egregious failure by every politician. At worst, yeah. obviously, it'd be human. It'd be the annihilation of mankind. So that that's kind of where I come from with whose fault is it to begin with, and did we do everything we could to avoid this? So you're you're when you're saying whose fault is it to begin with, you're you're talking about pivoting to going back to the negotiations before we get to this place. Yeah, I'm I'm, make, I'm making sure like everything is done, and I'm like we because there should be no reason we go nuclear at all, right? And I, I guess I'm framing it a little differently. I don't give a shit about the negotiate. I mean, like the point is we have to keep negotiating because nuclear war is not an option. There's just no nuclear war. In fact, I would might even go so far as to say even if we were nuked, there's still no nuclear war from my end because it's not changing anything. What what uh, Katie Hopper keeps quoting this woman that was on her show whose name I need to really commit to memory. But she said something like, every war is resolved diplomatically anyway. So you can do the diplomacy before the war or after. Like, it's all going to end the same way with diplomacy. 
how many people are just going to have to die before you do the diplomacy? Now, I think it's a little bit simplified because obviously the goal of the war is to put people in a better strategic situation to ask for more when they're doing the negotiations. I mean, that's why that's why the war. That's overly simplistic. That's why the war. But I I think that the the, the idea that at some point you're going to have to make compromises and doing something is the right and do something uh, and give up something is the right question because whether you're giving it up in the form of lives leading up to the negotiation or just giving it up because you just realize you, you play it out and realize, okay, we're not going to do the, okay, we're going to give over this disputed regions or whatever. It's the, the compromise is going to have to happen. There's actually a Star Trek episode germane to this, but, but go ahead and respond, Aaron. I, I, I'm, I, I guess I'm still like, I guess by ideal quote unquote compromise, um, that has to be on the table like, would be like, okay, the West needs to denuclearize. The, the West needs to be the ones to be first. They're like, okay, you need to get rid of your nuclear stuff before you tell anybody else what to do. Before anybody else gets rid of theirs. Well, okay, but the question of having nukes and using nukes are different ones. And I, this is, I'm not yeah, saying this, yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah, advocating yeah. for anything, but I'm just saying the, the, mm-hmm. conver- the, the, just because I personally might not use a nuke. It you know me not saying that out loud as if I'm the president of the United States puts is a different position. Like them not knowing that creates them from bombing that prevents them from bombing us, right? Like mutually, the the Cold War is cold because it's equally yoked, and it's mutually assured destruction. If I yeah. don't have nukes, then the, the the playing field is completely different. But I'm I'm asking what we would do in this current situation, what to do in this current situation where we all have them. I mean, but would I, I ever yeah. use them? The threat I is I understand the political value of the threat, but I don't understand why I would ever follow through on it from a, like an ethical or even strategic standpoint. I guess if I wanted to be really generous, like I would just say, look, you still have it. And that feels even fucked up saying that as a, as a ace in the hole, but I, that's, it's like, I guess you still have it as something you still use it as a check against other people, but I I don't know. This is just really weird. Like just just even saying that is just weird. Like, oh I gotta have this nuclear thing as a check to this other nuclear power. Um and everybody else has to have a check against I'm like so if any one of us decides we want to cross that line, so do we all step over the line together? And then I guess I'm thinking, does that just lead to annihilation inevitably when one person steps over the line? Yeah, that, that's the idea, Eric. It's, that's the idea yeah, of mutually extra destruction. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. It's just, it's, I don't know. It feels like, it feels too casual to just talk about. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the gist of this episode, Eric. Why I, everyone's talking no, about no. it so casually. Yeah, I guess, I guess, um, I guess with, with people being so cavalier about it, it's, it feels not, it feels like a mixture of like naivete and a little bit of arrogance too. Mm, it, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like it's all it's all it's, it's just really with the with everybody in the West. It's just we saw that that joke at the State of the Union. The everybody with the Ukrainian color. I'm like, come on, guys. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think, thank thank you for that, Eric. I think what might be useful for us to listen to is I'm going to set up this episode. I found a clip. I'm not exactly sure um, uh, if it's going to be 
how much of the episode you're actually going to taste from because I obviously haven't listened to it in advance. But there's an episode of the original series where the uh, Enterprise comes across a civilization that has been fighting this civil war for like hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years. And they're really, you know, horrified to discover that instead of actually they're like, how is there, how is there this a war? Like all these cities look great. There's no bombed out buildings. There's no dead bodies in the street. Like you guys are telling me there's all this war and these casualties. Why am I not seeing it? And they're like, oh, we don't do it like that anymore. They completely simulated it. And they have computers. Remember, this is, this is TV that's coming out in, in the high point, like hot, hot cold war times. You know, this is, uh, you know, like 1969 or something like that. And um, they have computers that generate algorithmically the outcomes of battles. And the generates casualty numbers, and then people are randomly cold, cold from the population. Your number comes up, and you have to report to an office, and they basically put you in a chamber, and they kill you. So the deaths are real, but they avoid all of the destruction. They're like, we had to figure out how to do this, or else our whole civilization would grind to a halt. And, of course, there's some hot chick that Kirk is into that gets her, gets her number called up, and so he's, like, personally invested. And he's like, just don't go. She's like, no. Our civilization will not work if we don't all do our duty and die. Like, this is so much better than it used to be. And it's a really interesting thought experiment because in some ways, these these countries going into these wars kind of know how it's going to go. They know what their resources are. There's obviously some chance involved in these battles. But they kind of know how it's going to go, and they do it anyway. Right? So here here's this clip. I'm going to get a drink of water while you guys listen to this. Captain's log, stardate 3192.5. Planet Eminiar 7. My orders are clear. We must establish diplomatic relations at all cost. You were warned not to come here. Half a million people have just been killed. Our duty now. Your duty doesn't include stepping into a disintegrator and disappearing. I'm afraid mine does, Captain. Sir, there's a multi-legged creature crawling on your shoulder. You and your party have been declared war casualties. You will be taken immediately to one of our casualty stations so that your deaths may be recorded. If possible, we shall spare your ship, Captain. But its passengers and crew are already dead. Okay. <laughs> Some original original series goodness for you. Uh, who's up next? Oops, sorry. Uh, oh, uh, I forget. Is it Biden? Like Biden. You're up. What's on your mind? Yeah, yeah. See, I told you it works. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's funny because it's actually a great clip. Um, I don't really watch the original series, but it's... Uh, it is interesting to think that when a society gets to the point to where it understands the damage that war can do and understands how, you know, kind of the situation we're in right now, that uh, anyone watching a nuke is just game over for everybody unless someone has the restraint and the, you know, like the, the belief that humanity's continued existence is more important than relaunching a nuke and destroying the earth. Um, but you, you'd think that society, when it got to the point to where it understood the destruction of war, uh, they'd be a little more cognizant of the futility of war, even in a simulated sense, right? The idea that uh, people would have to die, the uh, you know the concept that 
anything really good is going to come out of this conflict as opposed to the the diplomacy that we need to use to end uh, the potential conflict and to realize that we, we all live on one planet that we share. And if we want humanity to survive, to get to a place to where we can actually explore the stars, uh, to get to a place to where we can have, you know, our own enterprises, uh, we have to cooperate. And I do think, you know, it's, it, it, well, first of all, I hope you're not too, um, like distressed or uh, hopeless or, or anything like that. Um, I do think. No, I'm fine. I have very little stakes in this whole humanity thing at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a childless 36 year old. I mean, I do really like my new apartment, but. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you got stakes. We all got stakes. I mean, like the, even the idea of um, remembering a good Star Trek episode and, you know, uh, I know you have family and friends and everything. And I, you know, I know you're joking, but. I do think that, at least to me, this this world was is almost, you know, I could say almost, but it's always worth saving. Um, I think you know the sort of existence of humanity, whether you're religious or not, is is a miracle in a large way. Uh, I think it's worth actually fighting for it. So when when I, you know, when I when I hear an episode like today's. And you start to hear that a lot of the same people who are in the positions of power right now are some of the same warmongers who have been there before, and that the media is now repeating the same damn mistakes it made before. It makes you wonder, like, okay, so if the stakes are um, let these people maintain their power or seize it, uh, do whatever you can to to change that order and the stakes are, you know, nuclear annihilation, then it makes me wonder, you know, at what point do you begin trying to either run for things or do you dedicate yourself to just the constant political organizing that needs to be done between elections or, uh, or how yeah. actually do you fight? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or dot, dot, dot. You don't say it out loud on a recorded medium. Right. Right. Yeah. Especially if you're working at that Tony Law Firm. But... <laughs> yeah, I am. They're going to find these episodes. And then, uh, probably, so Look, I had a podcast for a year and was freelancing like a maniac for a year before my law firm figured out that that's what I was doing. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had my offer from The Intercept before my law firm, or, or I had interviewed at The Intercept before the law firm figured out that I had been doing journalist, journalism on the side. See, I'm... I'm thinking of trying to take a similar route, but I just don't think that, first of all, I don't know how viable it is. And then second of all, I'm almost at, you know, I'm also at the point too, where, where, you know, where are my actions going to have the most uh, effect at materially changing conditions for people on the ground? Uh, and I Sometimes, don't know. I'm very hopeful and you know me, I'm very like action oriented, but I got to say after reading a book like Andrew's, and having a conversation like that with him, the, you know, we talk about the pharmaceutical industry and all the money that keeps us from having Medicare for all. We talk about corporate corruption and all of these things, influencing tax policy, keeping us from having $50 minimum wage. But the depth of it, when it comes to foreign policy and the military industrial pol- uh, um, complex, it's so intense and like, honestly, hashtag murderous. That, <laughs> like it really scares the dickens out of me like that. 
you know, that really puts things in perspective. When when Bernie, I, I reflect back on the speeches Bernie used to give, and he'd be like, these are the powers that are aligned against us, and the, like, look in his eye when he would say the military-industrial complex. And I think about the ways people are critical of Bernie. Even, even when he was still running and everyone still is very much like, Bernie's going to save us. Uh, there was still some criticism about his foreign policy and it, and I, I reflect like, is that the area where everyone just has to compromise because the deep state is just too powerful. The blob is just too powerful. There's too much money and too many guns and too, it's just too much. It is, it is the structure that's upholding this entire global neoliberal economic system. And it's just too much for any president to even chip away at. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough. God, I was hopeful until you said that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll have us go out on a, on a good, good song. I'll have us go out tonight on the song I've been using for endorphin on my endorphins on my runs. Okay, cool, cool. It'll, it'll um, pick us all back up. I'm going to bring you down and lift you back up again. It's like it's like the color purple. This podcast <laughs> is the podcast equivalent of. The color purple. Oh God! Well, at least it's a good movie. You know why not? She she wins out in the end. Um, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I guess the last thing I'd say then is that you know, the if the result. I mean, if you still look at it in a way of you know the the alternative to not doing anything, even if the power that you're challenging is hopeless, um, even if you're not able to, you don't even know if you can actually move it. You know, it kind of goes back to uh, what's that guy's not. Guy, uh, guy's name what is it um albert Camus or something like that mm-hmm. who talks about the myth of sisyphus mm-hmm. and just the 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 idea of doing getting up and just doing a repetitive sort of hopeless task over and over again is there's a power to that there's a power to challenging something that is uh inevitable um there's a sort of like punk rockness that comes with just refusing to not push the boulder up the hill. And, you know, if nothing else, uh, some things seem huge, right? And the military industrial complex is one of those things. Uh, If you get to a position to where you can just make diplomacy the only option, I think you can start chipping away at that. Um, And that's what's so crazy about that episode. It's like they figured it out. They had all their algorithms. But instead of using those algorithms to say, okay, this is this is who's going to win, period. They just march their citizens, they snatch them from the grocery stores and put them in gas chambers and kill them. Yeah, it's it's, you know, I don't think that's inevitable, though. It It is. It's crazy, and God, Star Trek had so many good just concept it's so episodes. Good. It's, so it's good. really good. It's like you know, but um, and that in the '60s or whatever that was coming out is just a way ahead of its time. But uh, you know, I the fact is, okay, okay, let's take that episode. Right, I haven't seen it, but the fact that Kirk and Spock and all these people are trying to solve that, are trying to push back against that way of of thinking and show them another way. I think is where we come in, right? Is where people who are activists or people who care about there being another way can come in. And you just have to hope in the same way that um, I think the first, the first guest that you had on today. Mm-hmm. Um, Kusha. Yeah. Kusha was talking about uh, sometimes it just takes having the sense of that one person who chooses to do something different, who 
changes uh, the course of history by doing what they think is right. I know that's a little naive and I know that's a little, um, you know, sometimes too hopeful for people. But I mean, the fact that it actually happened should be food for thought. The fact that we could actually be not necessarily in those positions, but um, that if you find yourself in such a position that you can be that lever, um, that you can kind of change the course of things. I think, you know, and you never know if you're going to or not. And it really doesn't matter if you do or don't. It's just the, the I think the effort's what's important. The idea that you choose to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, it does at yeah. a certain point say something more about you and it's like about your ability to look at yourself in the mirror, which is, it's not necessarily the most movement oriented way to look at it. But sometimes, you know, I think to myself, well, what else is there to do? Yeah. I mean, you can work for a corporate law firm again. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. I didn't maintain my license. Okay. Well, you know, you can always come back to the dark side. Uh, I can't. I'm not not taking the bar again. I don't know. I do not have that 25 year old brain that could do all that. I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I passed the bar. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know how I'm still doing it either. Um, But yeah, I I feel stupider every day. (laughs) Agreed. 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 Well, well, thank you for calling in. Bye. Yeah, good talking with you. All right. Greg, what is on your mind this evening? Greg, unmute yourself. There you go. Hello. Um, Hello. I just wanted to speak. <laughs> it's all very interesting and relevant to me personally. First off, I thought Kusha's uh, monologue at the beginning was really nice, and I mm. appreciated it a lot because um, I actually – on my father's side of the family, I, his last name is Arhipov, so I have some relation to him somewhere potentially, but no way of knowing that for sure. Oh, lots and of cousins he, on this podcast. Me and Eric, he and actually, Susha. <laughs> <laughs> he actually went to his grave not telling that secret. That secret was released after his death, which hmm. is also interesting. But I wanted to say I really uh, I, I thought that in terms of the potential of nuclear weapons being used it's pretty relevant right now because if you look at the russian military doctrine i think they changed it in 2013 or 14 they basically said they were willing to use a first strike of a tactical nuclear weapon so a lower Mm -hmm. yield nuclear weapon against um uh, against a potential like the way i've heard it uh, going was like a, a, noble, a naval flotilla floating through the Atlantic or the Pacific and the Russians see it coming and they see they're going to have to face this military army. So they decide we'll do a first strike nuclear um, uh, thing and blow up all these people out of the water and hope that basically gamble that the United States won't respond or the, uh, the, uh, I think they're gambling a lot on public opinion in the United States, and that's what we forget. Like, we're focusing a lot outward, outwardly right now at looking at Russia and stuff. But how long um, is – I mean, I don't know. I don't think we're a very hearty people when I when I look at the people around me. I live in a metropolitan area, and I know there are hardier people who live out in the country who could probably shrug a nuclear strike off if they needed to. But – um, Look at nine eleven, man. I, <laughs> I, I don't. I, I tiptoe around saying this because obviously I, I don't want to be dis- disrespectful to anyone who knew anybody, lost anybody, those kinds of things. But I'll tell you, as someone who moved to America, back back to America six months of the day before nine eleven in New York, 
and went to went to high school and you know downtown i remember having such a different emotional response and such a different feeling about it all than all my other classmates and everybody else around Whereas coming from Kenya, where our embassy had been bombed in 1998, and I knew people who had died in that embassy bombing, the community was much smaller, obviously. And then being in, in New York and having a bombing happen, it, it was like, it was like, it was like, with all due respect, like Bubble Boy getting his first paper cut. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it was like, it, it, it was, it was the tragedy compounded by a feeling of a, of a community that's like, how could this happen to us? This could never happen to us. This isn't supposed to happen to us. And I understand that because it doesn't normally happen to you. It's not an irrational feeling. Like I, I tweeted frustration about the New York Times cover with the uh, with, no, New, York, New York magazine cover with a young Ukrainian woman who is in like army gear. And they're like, oh, she was just planning her wedding a week ago. And it's like, it's not relevant to how much you should care about her. But I understand, I understand emotionally why people are like this – this isn't supposed to happen to me, but that, that mindset is like very unique because everywhere else they're dealing with shit all the time. Everywhere else you can die from a mosquito bite. Your power goes off regularly, irregularly. You go without water for periods of time. You can't pick up the phone and call the police and expect them to come. Sometimes in America that people live like that, by the way, but never mind. Um, you know, you, you, you know, you expect that there's like a significant chance of a carjacking when you leave your house and you're like compulsively checking to make sure your door is locked and your dad is like speeding through intersections because, you, you know, at night you're not supposed to slow down at, at the corner, you know, like, mm-hmm. like that's mm-hmm. the level of like heightened awareness everyone else is kind of living in all the time. In other countries, there are terrorist attacks all the time, all the time. Yeah. And well, I just and feel I, like Americans just, they're not, they're just, they are in no way prepared. They are in no way prepared for that. And that's part of why they're talking so blithely about nuclear war. <laughs> and, and I mean, an example of that kind of reaction was, would be, I mean, not, not only 9-11, but maybe uh, Pearl Harbor. And that was mm. what started Pearl Harbor was we sanctioned J- the hell out of Japan. And they really had, I mean, from their strategic perspective, which is very complicated, they had no choice but to attack. The United States and take the oil reserves in much of Southeast Asia, which is part of the reason why they did it, because we embargoed that out of them, and which is a scary thought to think about. But yeah, I mean, I guess I have a, I'm not, I don't consider myself American, even though I am. I have dual citizenship, so I've mm-hmm. I've been very like conscious of even nuclear war since I was a kid. Like I watched, I don't know if you ever seen the anime Barefoot Gen or Jen, however you pronounce it, but it's a very good anime about the bombing of Hiroshima and just a family going through what that experience was and what they saw. And it's, it's shocking even just for being an animated film. And I mean, they also every year at one of the lakes where I lived, they would, you know, have a memorial for the bomber or the bombing in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we would put lanterns out into the lake. And it was interesting too, because I'd always see people coming by and screaming about how um, the United States needed to use the bombs because they needed to use them to save their soldiers. And I mean, to a degree, that perspective, I never agreed with it until recently. I don't agree with it, but I understand it now because we were actually firebombing Japan prior to those bombs and killing many more people with our firebombs, 
even before um, dropping those nuclear weapons. But I also agree with what Kusha said earlier in that there was larger geopolitical games happening that, um, you know, against the Soviet Union and with Nazi scientists and all that bullshit. But anyways, I also wanted to say um, it's it's scary because if the Russians are losing as badly as, you know, <laughs> the media says they are, which I don't think they are because I, I'm not following the media. I'm, I'm watching everything through Telegram and it's awful and terrible to see, but it's a different story from what you're being told on the media in terms of what the Russians are and aren't doing and what the Ukrainians are and aren't doing and what's really happening. And it, I mean, if the Russians do get backed into a corner, what scares me is the potential of them maybe, I mean, they, they have the same kind of um, mindset that I think the American blob has that is, you know, uh, American exceptionalism where the Russians see themselves as an, as an exceptional people in a, in a way, or at least Putin does. And what scares me is that if they're humiliated again, like they were during the Soviet Union and the Ukraine invasion, which may turn in you into an occupation, doesn't go the way that they're planning it to, they might use a nuclear weapon. What does give me some hope is that I think this is in a, in a large, larger scale cahoots with China and other non-aligned countries in the world. And it's a big, I mean, I see this as a huge middle finger to the United States and just the Western hegemony that has been going on since the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I, I mean, I don't know what to make of that either, because there's going to be a food shortage crisis potentially for mm -hmm. many people. And we'll probably be fine in the United States other than having to pay higher prices. But there's going to be people around the world potentially just starving, which could mean a huge refugee crisis. And I don't mm. know. It's just it's. <laughs> and have it's you really noticed that when Jin, Jin Saki was asked about the Ukrainian refugees at some point? This isn't like especially recent. But I found it, it was really interesting because she was asked, you know, will America take them? And for all the rah, rah, we love the blonde hair, blue eyed refugee stock that has been going on. She was like, well, I mean, that's premature. Most people don't want to go that far from home and Europe's taking them all like Europe's taking them. So, uh, you know, why are you asking me that? Of course, you know, but there was a long preamble before she got to like, of course, if needed. But it, it felt very much like we're not opening that door, perhaps because we know how many people are about to be standing on the other side of it. Not to mention how yeah. many people are already standing on the other side of it. And what I see happening, I'll break it down to like this, is the unipolar world is ending. And either we're going to go kicking and screaming out of it, which means lots of more death and unnecessary destruction, which is what I see happening right now. Or we operate in a way that, <laughs> I don't know, that doesn't go that direction, which would mean we had completely different people in power, which I don't see happening in like... <laughs> four years or whatever so i that's that's really what scares me and is upsetting and you know i i mean just to remind people like there are examples of people experiencing nuclear blasts not just from hiroshima and nagasaki like we uh, the west i guess there were british soldiers who experienced it and there's a good youtube video somewhere on the internet about how they they dropped a, they didn't tell them they just had them on a boat out in i think it was like bikini atoll and mm -hmm. you know they told them to all just duck and cover all of a sudden and like close your eyes and put your hands and and your arms around your head and they just detonated it and they said it just felt like this 
ghost, this raging hot ghost entering you for a second and it just left, but it left this huge burning sensation in you and you could see through your arms, like the x-rays on like a, yeah, intense shit. And they didn't even know this was happening. And they, now they're all veterans and it's like the video shows them as all veterans of that experience. Not a lot of them were killed by you know cancer and stuff like that and they all just look severely scarred and on my u.s side of my family i mean i had family that worked at brookhaven national laboratory and that was the first um lab in the united states or one of the first labs to have i think it was a a graphite reactor and it wasn't shielded properly so everybody Mm -hmm. at brooklyn national laboratory at least during the period that it was operational got um irradiated and there was a huge Mm. class action national lawsuit and so this shit is (laughs) isn't stuff you want to joke about and i mean the best thing you can do just to warn people if stuff does happen you probably have 30 minutes because the russians and the americans i mean who knows if they're going to follow this had guarantees that they would target nuclear facilities in their first Mm -hmm. strikes and that gives you maybe some breathing room to get underground and uh get somewhere with good shielding and you know i don't know what to say other than that because <laughs> it does happen i mean i i don't know i i'm hopeful about it i would be i think we can survive and humanity is amazing in many ways but uh, part of me does would enjoy the death of electronics in a, in a <laughs> sick way. I mean, I'm somebody who like refused to even get a, a flip phone until I was in ninth or 10th grade. And my mom just bought me when I felt bad, just like being like, ah, no, nah, I don't want that because I okay, felt, great. you know, like, okay. All right. No, All right. Read, We're... Books, read books. Okay. <laughs> I, I think we can get to a read books place without, you know, nuclear winner, but I hear, also, I hear you. <laughs> also, I appreciate doctors, Miss Frizzle, uh, comment. <laughs> you know, I think that was all our secret crush when we were growing up. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Who knew? Who knew? That's uh, that's what all of the fourth grade boys are jonesing after. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. How you doing, Sylvester? Unmute yourself, Sly. You know how it works around here. Sylvester, if you're ever encountering that bug where for some reason sometimes people can't unmute, just I'll next you and I'll bring you up after Micah. Okay, I'm going to do that. What's on your mind, Micah? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have like few different things that I've been thinking about. One is like, I definitely agree that, or at least I mirror the sentiment about like, at what point would I, given the position, push the button? And like, I just don't think people realize that there wouldn't, like, there becomes no point. Like, imagine you know, Russia is sending all their nukes at us and you're sitting there with the button, like, it's probably not just going to be the U.S. in the fallout. And, like, if humanity is going to survive, at least maybe we could restart in Russia, (laughs) you know, if we didn't, like, annihilate them back. Yeah, I just don't see the net benefit. I mean, like, here, here. So for one, the, the thing that has is like floating and unsaid about nukes is that there, there's nothing targeted about a nuke. 
I'm sorry, like maybe if you're bombing some nuclear facility out in the middle of the desert somewhere, sure, sort of, except for the whole consequences of fallout and radiation and toxins and depending on the number of nukes, literal global nuclear winter, you know, there's no targeting of this, you know? And so this idea that, oh, we have like drones and they're precise and we only occasionally hit a wedding and this is ethical (laughs) warfare and all of this kind of stuff, that's completely out of the way. So what you're telling me is that because, because somebody in, you know, Putin and his cronies decided to launch a bomb at the United States, that me, Brianna Joy Gray, who's the hypothetical president of the United States, is now responsible for killing millions Hundreds of thousands, let's say. I don't know how many. How many am I doing? Like, what are we saying here? I don't know. A lot, a shit ton <laughs> of Russian civilians be- just mm. because. Like, that's what you're asking me to do. Because even Stevens, hot cross buns. Like, it's not the playground. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, just, I just don't. Like, like if you're asking me, will I, will I launch all of our secret service Am I whatever guys that repel from ropes to go and like track down Putin and kill him or whatever? Sure. Okay. We can have a conversation about that. But, but I just, I am really having a hard time. Maybe this is why I should never be president, but I'm having a really hard time wrapping my brain around the world where I'm like, you know, what would make this better? You know, what would make these tens of thousands of American deaths better is if there were also tens of thousands of random Russian families that die. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that kind of brings me to another point that I have been thinking about, which is. Now I've lost it. (laughs) Uh, It happens. Yeah, um, I'll I'll just carry on to some the the only other thing I really wanted to say, which is um, it's maybe slightly off topic, but um, I've been having conversations with like coworkers and stuff recently about Russia because, you know, normally nobody wants to talk about any of this stuff. It's normally like boring, but apparently when it's like a war that involves Europeans, it's not boring. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I, I am encountering in these conversations the same sort of frustrations that I often have when I talk to like conservatives And they tell me that, like, AOC is dragging Biden to the left and stuff. I just kind of, like, I'm like, I don't know how far back I need to go in order to contextualize this to the point where we can have even remotely productive conversation. Boy, oh, boy. You know what I mean? Like, like, and and that, like, (laughs) freezes my brain. And then I, you know, feel like an idiot and like I don't even have anything to say, even though I have so much to say. I just like I'm like, how much of the world do I need to explain to you? Let me tell you. So I was on this date on Friday (laughs) (laughs) and this man was handsome. Okay, Mm -hmm. he was, as my grandmother would say, straight of limb, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is probably ableist. And I shouldn't say that. But the point is that he is I was wanting this one to work. Right. At one point in this conversation politics comes up you know we don't have to talk about it but it came up and he indicated that his favorite uh you know his person in the primary was pete Buttigieg. now mm-hmm. i could ignore a lot of things <laughs> I, could, I could skirt by like oh you liked kamala because like representation <laughs> like okay whatever like i don't have to, i'm not gonna argue with you about okay I, I understand the value of representational politics right like i don't think it's the most important thing but like i understand it 
I, mm-hmm. I you know, oh, you liked um, Warren because she had good policies and seemed really smart. Okay, vomit, but I get it. Fine. Mm-hmm. I can work with this. Biden seemed like the best person to beat Trump. I just cared about beating Trump. He seemed electable. Okay. I can work with this. All of these things I can work with. Pete Buttigieg is my trigger. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I will admit that. So we were having this conversation and he was like, okay, well explain to me to, in his defense, he was like very measured and chill about it. He says, well, explain to me, you know, what the difference is between a leftist and a liberal. Cause I kept averring that I was aggressive. I was, I'm not a liberal and I don't identify as a Democrat. He's like, okay, well help me understand the difference. And I was sitting there and I was looking at him and I was like, this, there's no getting out of this. This is about to be like 45 minutes. Right. I, I was really thinking to myself, like, what is what is the like five sentence, one paragraph synopsis of the difference? And in that moment, as I was trying to explain to him in what turned out to be a rant, which will probably means I'm not going to have a second date with this person. <laughs> uh, I, I realized, you know what, Brianna, you really don't want to write this book, but maybe you have to write this book because we're all trying to make this clear to people without just like screaming at them for an hour about like neoliberalism and they could like I, I literally ended up at this table with this poor guy walking through the whole Michigas around the $15 minimum wage being taken out of the must pass COVID bill yeah <laughs> like, I'm like okay, okay listen 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 just like here's an example like just hold, hear me out hear me out hear me out and like because he kept saying like I just want someone who can get things done and it wasn't their fault. Like you need the votes. And I was like, well, the whole point of budget reconciliation, like this is a great example because they actually had the votes. And then Chuck Schumer, apropos of nothing, took it out of the bill. And so they didn't have to, but it was just too much. It was too much for a dinner on U street. And what we need is to have some resources that we can share with our friends and family that do it in a way that is approachable and not too uh, aggressive, the judgment. Yeah. Yeah. I think I tend to agree with that. I, I mean, I gen, I try to like keep things as narrow as possible, but even so, it's, I mean, it's impossible to keep things narrow when, like, in at least in my opinion, like most of these issues are like inextricably linked and in ways that we probably that most people don't realize. Yeah, and that's why the conversation gets so big. It's like it's not just this; it's that; it's the other. But then there are these like central like. Um, these like go-to knee-jerk like sayings or beliefs that I do think recur so often. Like s- someone needs to get things done. Like how many times do you hear that? Like I, what does name Mayor of New York? Eric Adams just put out a video today where he blended a smoothie to the tune of Beyonce and then ends it saying it's like his first TikTok. He blends a green smoothie with Beyonce playing in the background, then turns to the camera and says, "Let's get things done." Blech. <laughs> Like that's that is what the, that is like liberal cabinet. They love that shit. We're gonna get things done. No, you're not. Maybe yeah, a couple you, evil you things. <laughs> they don't. They don't even understand what that means. Nothing. Like they don't understand how anything works. It's just vibes. And, and therefore, like <laughs> how, like, like they don't understand why nothing gets done. Exactly. Or that, or that it's intentional. Because they fundamentally believe that it's about they 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 believe. They, they treat these politicians like they're acting in good faith. So if, if Joe Biden says, oh, we tried and failed to get the $15 minimum wage, they just accept it. And I, I don't mean that like, like, I get it. Like, I used to accept shit like that, too. I used to fully believe, look, if Obama isn't closing Guantanamo or doing whatever the hell else he promised to do, I know he's a good guy. There must be some impediment that he cannot overcome. And it, it is what it is. 
And that's why I love these examples, like the $15 minimum wage, right? Because like, it really shows you procedurally how they set it up. They set it up to look faultless over and over and over again. And, and we only have those examples, by the way. And this is why I'm on the fence about this electoralism stuff. Mm. We only have that example because we did have the numbers. Do you know what I mean? Because we had right. Congress and so they actually could have passed it through bus- budget reconciliation. And we have these examples um, uh, with uh, – we, we were able to say that the, uh, the House could hold up X, Y, and Z because we had the squad numbers to hold up anything. And so, like, there is value. This, this year, I think, has been really um, demoralizing, but also revealing, uh, you know, 2021, because there were just enough Democrats to show how useless Democrats are and how much they could be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been surprised. Like, I'm relatively young. I'm 26. So I was in first grade when 9-11 happened. Mm. Pretty oblivious to most things. Uh, and... And it's just been a shock to me, to, like with this ongoing Ukraine stuff, just how how people generally seem to have like okay instincts, but that the public is so easily whipped up into a kind of malicious craze. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, like it's it could go one way or the other, which is why I think like. Like, why maybe even like throwing out all the qualifier, all the qualifiers all the time is is a counterproductive thing. I mean, take like what happened uh, in Venezuela and, you know, a few years back and everybody was like, yeah, yeah, this is bad. Or even the people on the left, they were like, yeah, this is bad. Doesn't really make sense. But Maduro bad, Maduro bad, Maduro bad. And you had to like throw the qualifiers out. Mm-hmm. And it didn't serve to educate anybody about the history of what was going on in Venezuela or what the actual effect of U.S. foreign policy on, like, South and Latin America is or or anything like that. I, I just, like, I, like, it's, you don't want, you want to appear approachable to people, but at, the, at, at, at what point are you just, like, aiding and abetting a complete, like, a complete, oxymoron of a situation or juxtaposition where everybody thinks we're one you know in this place but we're it's not even the same universe yeah i do i have mixed feelings about caveating because there are people who you know don't know you from adam and they've been propagandized and they they really are more willing to listen to you if you make it just clear that you do think that putin has invaded and it's wrong to invade a country and that you don't like putin it's stupid and painful and it's ridiculous to have to say, oh, by the way, I don't like Putin, don't care for Putin at the beginning of every conversation. But like there are people who are operating in good faith for whom that's useful to hear. However, in online, in the social media space, like I'm much less inclined to give in to those caveats because it's filled with bad faith actors who just want you to it's it's like the it's like the tell me why you beat your wife thing, you know? And then you spend all this time doing the caveat and all anybody's thinking is that you're like making excuses for how you really secretly want to make out with Putin or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I do, I think about Trump. I'm sorry. Like I think about Trump and how everyone was so mystified by how nothing stuck to him and nothing stuck to Trump because he wouldn't like, he wouldn't even begin to think about apologizing. He wouldn't even acknowledge this charge you flung at him. And if you don't have the media clip of him denying the thing or even talking about the thing, it's hard to make the media cycle last. 
And even when you have it, it still didn't matter. <laughs> like, well, I mean, the thing is, but they didn't have it. Like, what? What, what is Trump? Trump, you're a racist. Well, okay, whatever. Look at the media; they're lying about me. The media is lying yeah. about me. It's not. Yeah, I'm not a racist. I have specific. 15 black friends. Oh, that's the other thing. The accusations were always so stupid. I wrote a whole article. People, people were mad at me. Whatever. I wrote an article back in the day for Rolling Stone. Said something that was called something like the trouble with calling Trump racist. Man, I used mm-hmm. to have some takes. <laughs> yeah. I was out here on the front lines with some takes back in 2017, 2018. Well, but that the, is amazing. <laughs> but yeah, my, my point was that like this is not doing anything to him. It's too ephemeral. When you ask people what they actually mean, they cite things like him saying Mexico is not sending their best people, which I don't love. But like the, the argument that he's making is not Mexicans are inferior. Like, I, again, I, I know how it sounds, but the argument that he's making is not – Mexicans are like genetically, you know, inferior. It's that the people who are immigrating here are, you know, poorer and more inclined to crime. Now, statistically untrue, that's an untrue statement. And it's certainly baiting people who already are inclined to have racist views about Mexicans. But Trump has decades of history of saying things that are explicitly racist that cannot be argued around. You know, mm-hmm. like I have heard so many Republicans make the argument that like that statement isn't really racist. Okay, the people that you want to believe Trump is racist don't think that statement is racist. So you can keep using that example, which they will argue around and nobody will believe you and you lose faith. They lose faith in you as a credible actor. I'm not saying it's fair or right, but that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Or you can pivot to the fact that, I don't know, the first time Donald Trump was ever even cited in the New York Times was because he was sued successfully for discriminating against black tenants in his built buildings in New York. He literally would like wouldn't let black people live in his buildings and you guys are like cherry picking these other examples. Dude, like there's low hanging fruit. Also, yeah. like I don't know why you're trying to convince a bunch of white people that they don't they shouldn't support Donald Trump because he's racist. Who gives a shit? <laughs> they obviously think that Donald <laughs> Trump is doing something for them. Do I wish everybody cared about racism and voted based on racism? I mean, maybe, sure. I mean, I, that's not even my number one priority when I go to the poll. So I don't know, understand how I expect some white person to think, you know, ask the white person what they want or what are they concerned about? The economy, schools, jobs, gas prices. Okay. Tell them why Trump is bad for all of those things. But nobody ever wanted to do that. They wanted to sit around being like, well, Trump was racist. And it's like, <laughs> so are you, dude? Like, <laughs> like all these MSNBC pundits and stuff. Like, I remember, I'm sorry. I know I'm going to stop this rant. I'm going to stop okay. this rant. But and the, I think the best thing I ever wrote was this piece for New York Magazine that was a response to Tommy C. Coates' great white, first white president piece about Donald Trump. And I, in it, I quote this stat that everyone loved to pass around back then, which showed that it was a breakdown of racial attitudes of people who voted for different candidates. Now, small footnote, there's a version of this chart that includes Bernie Sanders, Trump, Hillary, and Bernie. That version is very difficult to find, and I think it's because Bernie – had the least racist of all of the groups. There's a, mm-hmm. for some reason, yeah. the edited version of that chart that's just Trump and Hillary is everywhere. No one has the one with Bernie on it. Anyway, it was like, oh my God, I told you Trump voters were racist. Look, you know, 45% of Trump voters think black people are less intelligent or 35% think that black people are more inclined to crime and all of this shit. I'm looking at this chart like Hillary's numbers are only like 10% behind Trump's numbers. <laughs> 35 to 45, 25 to 35, like hella racism in the Hillary mm-hmm. camp. And you're telling me I'm supposed to, 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 to have my whole attitude toward politics in the world and the life in life contingent on the little like 15 point spread between these two racist camps. 
I'm sorry. I'm not <laughs> especially comfortable with 30% of Hillary voters thinking black people are intellectually inferior, especially since a good chunk of those Hillary voters are actually black people. So if you take the black people out of those voting numbers, who the hell, like the white, the white Hillary voter and the Trump voter might be pretty much the same numbers wise. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> like the argument for like people making the sort of, well, you might, things might not, might not be changing as fast as you want them to be, but you know, some change is better than no change. And I'm <laughs> like, well, if you're already in the negative, and you're incl- and you're not even back to zero. You're not even getting to the positive yet. And you're incrementer- incrementally working your way back to zero, just so that you can get to a place where something positive can be done. Are you accomplishing anything? Is that progress? Like, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's just the Steven Pinker thing. It's like people do leverage this idea that there's been some incremental progress as an excuse to say that our system is the best. Like, they're like, you know, the whole capitalism is, isn't is perfect, but it's the least bad form of government there is. Or look how many fewer people die of cholera now than they did 100 years ago. Why are you complaining? <laughs> and it's like, okay, we're talking about politics, which is what we can do to make the world better. I don't understand why you keep bringing up all this shit from the past other than you're supposed you're trying to justify the system we're having right now when I'm having a conversation about all these other systems which could make things happen at a more accelerated rate. So we are not even having the same conversation. But that's a good point. That should be a chapter in this book is all of the – the kind of ex- the, the infrastructure of excuses that are ultimately ways to defend the system. And I got to say, identity politics is a huge one. And, you know, people like they'll say, well, isn't it better to have someone like Pete or Obama or Kamala elected to prove that, like, this can really happen in America? And it's like, no, you elect a black person or a woman or a gay person. And everyone, a lot of people sit back, cross their arms and say, God, I knew the system worked. And that's what they want you to think. Yeah, it, it didn't do shit. Nothing changed. <laughs> well, and and that doesn't even compare to how it can be. Just w- how those things are are weaponized against you. Like I caught a lot of flack from people for for, I I mean I wasn't shouting it, but I felt very strongly that like I really would like to have a woman president, but like like Hillary was always going to be a disaster. Like Trump was a disaster. Hillary was going to be a disaster. Like I would love to have a woman come in and like run shit, like be a good politician, do productive things. Like, yeah, I voted for Jill Stein. So right. Right. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Just anyway, um, I'll surrender to the queue. I just, I'll, I'll leave on this final thing, which is that, uh, I, like when when it comes to kind of all of these conflicts and like arms races or disarmaments or whatever, at some point, like you can never get on a de-escalation track in my view, unless some party is like, listen, we're never going to do this. We're just going to start dismantling things. Like if you attack us, if you take advantage of us, fine, but like, we'll make it worth your while if you don't. And, but like, and, and, and generally I feel like, like the the party with the most power probably has to be the one that does that because otherwise, you know, you can never, you know, it's, it's like trying to settle a fight by throwing another punch. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you, Micah. I appreciate you. And thank you for tolerating my, um, my rant.
Oh, I thought your rant was fantastic. I agreed <laughs> completely with it. So you're, you're, it was my rant as well. <laughs> my rant is your rant too. <laughs> Right. Yeah, but we you. Go out. Thank you, Micah. What's up, Reed? Hey, um, yeah, I love your rant too. So please don't <laughs> hesitate. Keep it coming. Keep going. And also, Pete Buttigieg is my kryptonite as a gay white male. <laughs> like I have to deal with it all the time on a level that just, oh my god, like I can't. I don't even know where to have the conversation. Anyway, I. <laughs> As I'm sitting here, I just want to be quick. I want to make time for other people. I'm looking at the people on the call, and I'm I, I'm a kind of a person who likes to solve things and to fix things and to take action. And like, so I guess my question to you is, what can we do around all of this to reframe some of it to get us to like on social media be out there, like getting people to think about this differently than where they are? Because I do feel a little isolated and frustrated that we can't do that in some ways. But it, thank you for making me feel less isolated. No, thank you. This is, you know, the first social interaction I've had since my Pete Buttigieg date. So I appreciate you, Reed, and all of you here having this conversation with me. I also haven't forgotten about you, uh, Sylvester. I mean, I had, but then I just remembered. So I'm going to come to you. Um, this is This is difficult for me because, you know, this is not my wheelhouse. I'm doing crash course foreign policy. You see me like I'm trying to give you guys growth, but <laughs> like I'm just playing catch up here. I'm not I'm like I'm learning a lot from you in these conversations, resources, people to read, people to have on. I'm not in a place where I am with like student debt where it's like this is obviously the this is obviously the hold up and this is what we need to be protesting for and I'm going to go talk to Asha Taylor and we're going to figure out how to get as much energy as possible over the student debt. Like I'm not I'm not there when it comes to this. Um it does it does strike me as curious that there's not more public condemnation of like Lloyd Austin and the rest of the crew, Victoria Newland and the rest of the crew. It does strike me as you know the, you know the uphill battle strikes me as particularly hot and steep when I'm you know on that uh, Twitter spaces that I referenced and the woman was like shrieking at me to give her you know proof that the U.S. had been involved in Ukraine at all. And it's completely unfamiliar with the name Victoria Newland, And it is frustrating to know that all this information is sitting out here in the public. Like that John Meacham, um, sorry, uh, Mearsheimer uh, video being from 2015, sounding like it could have been recorded yesterday. It's like, it, it's like nice that it's a resource, but there's something chilling about that for me. But it's all Very. right there and it was so relevant and it was right there. And even has millions of views, that video. Like, people were already had looked at it but just didn't have the pop public breakthrough. Going back and listening to those old episodes of Jim Briney's show and being like, holy shit, all of us was right there. You know, I it is – it's a little like, okay, it's not like an information issue. It's the fact that the information is only going – you know, the information is there and people have been talking about it, but just only in these silos, not in the mainstream. And I looked at the view today because it was trending, and I saw – you know, Horrifying. a guest panelist who's, you know, a nice woman, you know, who I have been on the Hill with. And I think about how, like, on some level, we are both on the Hill. Like, we have a certain level of, like, parity there. But knowing that I will never have the access to go on the on the view like that. You know what I mean? She's their, like, uh, conservative right now. And, you know, if you're a kind of like a Trump-hating conservative, as she is, or libertarian, I'm not sure how she identifies exactly – you can be in that space much more than someone like me can ever be in that space. I mean, they almost they were almost mean to AOC when she went on 
on the view. And, you know, we stand a, a, a attractive woman of color, you know what I mean? Like, so what are my odds? Like, what are the odds of anybody breaking through? Like I told you guys the story about how a, a mainstream cable news show, daytime show reached out to me about doing coming on for a black history month episode. And my answers were too critical of the Biden administration for them to have me on yeah. like my, in my pre-interview. So like, yeah. I I'm just putting all that out there to say like, Dude, like independent media, I'm going to do an episode coming up this week with some of the people who have been implicated by the shutting down of the YouTube sites that, ha- that have happened this week. And, you know, like that, Ooh. that is a real problem when I think about how important independent media is. And I think about all the things I'd love to do. <laughs> I love, like I spend so much time consuming content and it's like, oh, I wish I could clip all of these things and we could be doing live streams and talking about all these clips and like holding people to account. And I want to be, have the time to write all these articles and I want to write this book about how to explain things to liberals and I want to do all this stuff. But it's like, it just feels really overwhelming sometimes to be honest, not to mention like, Oh God, yeah, I really do actually have to call Astra about the student that strike stuff. And it's just like a lot, the domestic policy has gone right out the window. No one even seems to care except for gas prices. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, just re- just really quickly, I sent you a DM, which I know you don't look at, but there was an art exhibit at the MoCA in Massachusetts around student debt, which I don't know if you saw. Wait, DM sent- on this? On this app? Yeah, oh, okay. on the call-in. It's a link to it, which is this really cool conceptual art exhibit where she made, I'm going to butcher it if I describe it, so I won't do it here, but she, it was beautiful and really amazing. So take a look at it. I sent you a okay. link to it on there. Um, and yes, any way that it can support you with any of that, I'd love to, and I'll pass it on to someone else. Thank you for all you do. Yeah, of course. We need to, I don't know, we just need to think, I don't know, it's got to be, it's just, I really appreciate what Crystal is doing right now, because she's trying so to bring I. together love a lot it. of love yeah, disparate voices of, of um, media folks, content creators from across the left, people who aren't getting as much attention to try to build up an independent media network. I think that's very smart. I agree. I'm so on board. But I, anyway. I'd like, yeah, I'd like to see more of that. <clears throat> You're the best, Brianna. Thank you. Ciao. Thank you. Bye bye. Um, fun fact: When I was like in preschool, we had to do these daily journals where we would draw a picture and then write something underneath. And I would always sign mine off. I started for some reason signing mine off Chow, but I would spell it C H O W. And I remember the first time I showed it to my teacher and she cracked up laughing and I couldn't tell if she was laughing with me or at me and it made me deeply insecure. But every day I would bring her my little journal entry to sign off on and she would just chortle, just LOL, LOL, LOL. And it was obviously many, many, many years before I figured out where I was going wrong. What's on your mind, Sylvester? Yeah, the, yeah, she was definitely laughing at your ass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, because if I was there, I would have been going the same. <laughs> Look at little BB trying to be, you know, being a well-rounded child. <laughs> I don't even know where I got that. Like, what did I know about any child to begin with? <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, that's cute, but you got a lot to learn. It's okay. <laughs> conversation and this conversation is, is really really good um i'm gonna keep on you know pounding the fist on the, the astra thing gotta talk to her and the gang yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep 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 you know? <laughs> april's around the corner i'm gonna be out there regardless you know but april's around the corner for sure so you're right and, and you're right. right behind it it's and you're right correct behind. 
You know what's really funny about the student debt stuff I was thinking about the other day? It's like the business community would never accept this level of uncertainty. Like your ability to plan long term. I don't know about you guys, but like my decision making about how much to save or, you know, how much to keep liquid or how much, you know, is, is impacted directly by what happens to these student loans. You know what I mean? It's like. I, I cannot do financial planning with the precision that I would like to do because I have no idea if five months from now I'm going to have two, you know, two, $2,300 recurring payments happening again or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was like making a decision about like, oh, I feel very, I feel liquid enough to move into a more expensive apartment, but how real is this? And how am I going to feel when these payments start kicking back in? And is it going to be the full amount or is it going to be 10,000 off? Is it going to be $50,000 off? By the way, I listened to um, when I said, oh, I wish I could clip more things and talk about more things. One of the things I really wish I could have clipped was a lot of segments from the most recent pod save with Elizabeth Warren, which there's lots to discuss. Maybe I'll get my wits about me and figure it out and do a special uh, extra bonus episode this week or a live stream. I I think I want to do a COVID live stream tomorrow, but no promises. I know I haven't done a live stream in a really long time. Anyway, sorry, Sylvester. Uh, did you have something? No, 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 you mind? good. You, you good. Yeah, no, you know, um, specifically, I know we get on tangents and things like that, but uh, specifically during that podcast episode, something that had stood out to me, I wanted to bring it up to you, uh, was the brother that was on there who was, he, he said that, I forgot what year it was, I think he said 1981. He said there was a million people out in New York or something like that, you know, when they thought it was like the new uh, nuclear was mm-hmm. coming or something. Mm-hmm. In Central Park, there's a million people. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering today, what's the difference between why there was a million people out there back then and why there's not a million people out there? Because, you know, we got a litany of different issues we could be out there for, you know. Um, yeah, a million people would think it's because back then you couldn't be on quote unquote there. And that's maybe why some, you know, there's not a million people out in Central Park right now. Or why you think that with so much going on? Oh, we're cutting in and out for me, Sylvester. Is that happening for other people? In the streets right now. Okay, I heard in the streets right now, but you were you were out for like six six or seven seconds. But but I get your gist. Why why are there not more people in the street? Let me ask you this, Sylvester. What would motivate you? to get in the street right now. Cause when I reflect on it, I'm a little bit put off by a lack. Like I'm really driven by specific demands. Like I want to be chanting for something. I've, I've been in protests. I participated in protests where we were kind of walking around with signs saying, you know, abstract <laughs> things, you know, when the Muslim ban and stuff happened, I was out there, you know, Muslim ban is bad. Don't do that. Trump should go away. Like I was out there, you know, but, like, that doesn't, like, do, and I always feel like a little bit of a poser. Like, oh, I'm just here to be here. Yeah. I mean, what would motivate yeah, you no. to, to go out? I'm already out. So, it, it's, yeah. you know, but it's not, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so it, I, I shouldn't even ask. I, I know you're the best <laughs> among us. No. <laughs> no, but you know what? I, no, I can't be the best of who I am until other people can be the best of who they can be. So I'm not even at my best right now because whatever I'm doing isn't enough to – and I, I'm not going to be the singular thing that gets BB back in the street holding the Trump is bad sign or anything like that. I'm not going to be the singular person. But um, uh, So I flip it back to you. Well, you know, what 
like if you want specific demand, you're saying the thing that's stopping you from getting out into the streets is like I want something specifically also, to do. I want to um like I'm gonna be honest about this, and I think that Trump voters understand that, like uh, conservatives understand this. People need an enemy. And they want to feel like I'm out protesting in a way that's going to make things politically inconvenient for my enemy. That's going to make things embarrassing for my enemy. Mm. And I am very much not fond of Joe Biden. I'm not so either. I like really I cannot like stand Joe Biden. You, you, you. And for me, like the idea of a big student debt demonstration in front of the White House that persists for a long period of time and draws new cover news coverage and is embarrassing to him it's not just yeah. that we're fighting for student debt it's that we're embarrassing him that's <laughs> you know what, like I mean, let's to, get diabolical with it yeah. yeah that that's what fuels me the idea that like the 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 medicare for all strike you know at march the idea that we're out there and we're like we're in a pandemic and this mfer is sitting here talking about he won't even push for a public option like you need to be account like that that makes my like blood rise it makes me want to be somewhere and do something. I don't care how many of us are there. We're going to be there. We're going to go out. You know, like that makes my me bristle because it's not because, you know, like it or not, I think people are driven by that kind of interpersonal conflict. A vague, right. a vague war is bad and we shouldn't do it. And nuclear war is bad and we shouldn't do it. Like, yeah, totes. I mean, I agree with you. Totes. And if the parade happens to go down my past my house, I'll pop out <laughs> and you for a few lots. But like. You know, Joe Biden hired a former Raytheon executive. You know, Joe Biden is lockstep with him. This is how many, how much money X, Y, and Z Congress member took from the military industrial complex. I was at that event the other day, and one of the speakers said that something like, like 95% of elected Democrats or something, some wild, crazy number had taken at least it was a big number. I'm making numbers up, but it, it was something like this. Like 95% of Democrats have taken at least $50,000 from the defense industry in the last year. I don't know like, the 50, as, It's like 100000 it, It's like 100000 Is that much? Like, I, I don't want to. I'm not no, trying I'm to like. Extra. No, no, no. Oh, add okay. on to it. They deserve it. Yeah, add well, on to it. Go ahead. I'm not trying to do fake news. But the point is, as he was saying this sentence, I thought he was going to end it like in their careers. Not in the last year. It was, it was, a, it was a gallingly large number for just one year and it was everybody who's taken the money you know and that's why when i was saying to the earlier caller like this this defense military industrial stuff is like a whole nother level of sending chills down my spine that's why like it's when we when we castigate people for being against medicare for all because they've taken pharmaceutical money we're all, we're often talking about amounts of money that aren't like that Big like Gavin Newsom taking a hundred thousand for his reelection campaign or whatever that was on the bigger side of things. You know their their reach, their ability to control things is like not necessarily through those direct donations like that. And oftentimes, like we're we're referencing relatively small amounts of money because also congressional candidates, some of them don't need that much money in their election campaigns. Like it's it doesn't it doesn't like attack the ear in the same way that the stat that this guy said at this event was. And that just, it's like they, you know, the pharmaceutical industry wishes they had as much money as the defense industry. Um, so, so you think, yeah, so, you think so, in, so in 1981 or whenever 1.5 was out there, who was the enemy for that? Who did we paint as the enemy to get people out there? I don't know. I mean, okay. we can look did into he, it. I, I don't know. Was, it, was it Bush? It. I don't no, know. No, he said 1981, though. 1981. 
Yeah, and you, I didn't even know about this. So I was just like, oh, this is new information to me. But then I'm just thinking, of like, okay, if it worked back then, how can we remix and reboot it like they do with every new old show that we had back in the 90s? How can we reboot that into 2022, like, terms? But the other thing is, that though, so I said, did it work? Because I, we don't have to go back to 1981 to see millions of people in the street and how that doesn't translate into any policy changes. Okay, then we start getting into our acceleration talk. That's <laughs> where we always end up, isn't it? That's, yeah, and, and you know what? I was actually going to commend you because it's it's like the fact that you're able to have these conversations, know what's wrong, but then be able to have it in a way where like it's still, you know, people still want to engage with it, even though like, okay, we all kind of know the thing is wrong and what we need to do, but we're just not there and doing it. But then you, you, you know, you do it in a way where it's just like, okay, we can keep this thing going, but how do we kind of break out of the, the, um, the, uh, I don't know, the hamster wheel. Yeah. And it's just going around in a circle in a circle. Um, I guess, you know, you said demands is, you know, specific one thing, but I think I, I actually, I do really like that in terms of just like today, people like being petty and they like to get into like into the mess. We like getting yes, into the mess. Yes, we do. That's, yes, we do. Let's do some messy protesting. Okay. Let's air some dirty laundry. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, no, hey, real, and then you know, I can see that trending on the talk tick. You know, that can trend on that can trend on Graham, Insta, all of the things. So I think that uh, uh, if we could do a better job in just really painting the narrative on, I, and I like that you said that, like, yo, let's embarrass this dude because what he's doing is embarrassing. Um, that maybe like more people would engage with it because it's not just doing it because it's the right thing to do. But you get to kind of tap into that, like, not the best side of yourself, but it can actually do a good thing. I mean, Petty Brianna has been really starved for attention, and she wants to come out. <laughs> Sometimes I, like, listen to Red Scare, and I think, God, this is, like, not fair. Like, I have mean, dark thoughts, but I'm not allowed to say them out loud. And you guys get paid so much money for, like, not even trying to be nice. And I'm so jealous. <laughs> But that's another story. That's good. So I'll go ahead and let the cue get go on and get in. Um, chow as a little brief. <laughs> chow with a W. <laughs> chow with. <laughs> All right, Zach. What's on your mind? Hi, Brianna. Um, <clears throat> I uh, I was gonna ask about like, you know, nuclear war and the terrible prospect of that but mm. like actually what you just said at the end there about red scare made me think of another question which is just like how do you <clears throat> how, and, and is it okay if i ask this briefly as like a little break from the world ending discussion or um i can also oh, just can, ask we it we can oh. break from uh, apocalypse anytime okay um yeah well basically i just wonder like how do you navigate the space of like, and I think you've talked about this before a little bit, but just like podcasting and like political commentary and the Twitter online space. And the fact that it seems like every day there there's, there's some new cleavage between like these weird different like pseudo factions and alliances online and how like at the end of the day, like, does any of this really mean anything since all that this really is, is like a relatively small um, online community that like 
it's not clear how much impact although i'm not going to devalue the i i think that the impact of your platform and of a few other podcasters platforms is really positive um but of course i'm biased but i'm just saying like how do you how do you like how do you navigate that kind of that that kind of space um as like an influential podcaster well and i it's very generous of you to characterize me that way. Sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. It's difficult, you know, because I don't, I've, I've mentioned this before. I am uncomfortable with the, the kind of model, like the income model where, you know, okay, you can say log off, don't pay attention to the internet, but one, paying attention to the internet, what people are talking about informs what I want to do episodes about and what I think will people will be interested in which is right. always related somewhat to what is going to quote unquote drive clicks. You know what I mean? And I like to think mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about that. I'm even if something is clicky, I try to find a substantive angle. So, okay. Everyone's talking about Hassan's house. Okay. I'm not going to make weird ad hominems about Hassan. Let's just have, you know, um, Chris Hedges and Richard Wolf on to talk abstractly about, you know, is there such thing as a moral maximum income? Should, you know, should there be wealth limits? You know, how should we think right. about whoever it is, not just Hassan, Bernie, whomever, about how much, how much skin they have in the game and whether we can trust them to lead movements, you know? So I have those kinds of moments. Then I'll have like someone who wants to pick a fight with me and I'll think to myself, well, this isn't constructive and I don't want to do it. But also I know I can definitely drive some clicks by yeah. engaging this. Thing. And it's like, I'm, I'm, I know I'm actively hurting myself by just ignoring this person, throwing a tantrum on the internet, but it feels like the right thing to do for a broader purpose. And then it's like, okay, well, there'll be a, you know, decline in patrons. Well, I don't mm-hmm. really feel comfortable in saying, Hey, you got to pay more patrons because you got to support independent media when there's still plenty of patrons for me to live a very fine life. Right. You know, it feels weird for me to want to put the squeeze but at the same time as a business quote unquote businesswoman. You know, a decline, a little decline is fine, but a, a trending decline is a problem. Ultimately, it's going to be a problem, and I can't wait till it's a problem to like address it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm torn in all of these ways, which is nobody's business, and I'm just whining and complaining on the internet now. I, I understand that, but well, it I is, asked. So like, I <laughs> you asked. It, it's difficult. It's difficult. I, sometimes I do wish I could just log off and not care and do what I want to do and yada yada. But it's difficult not to feel responsive in some ways to patrons. Yeah, I mean, like, you have, like, you, like, you have, I feel like, turned so many people, well, I guess I can't speak for anybody but myself, but just, you really have, like, you, you have people expecting you to, like, comment on stuff, you know, and give your opinion on things and interview experts on different issues and, like, do all this stuff. And sometimes I just think about, like, if if I try to put myself in the shoes of you or some other of, you know, the, my, the people that I like to listen to when to speak about politics, um, I'm just like, wow, like that must be a really stressful or it could be a really stressful position to be in because you're really like, as you were saying earlier on this very uh, call in, like, you know, you're not exactly at your most comfortable talking about in depth about foreign policy and yet here we are, like, that's all that anybody wants to talk about. And so you kind of have to, like, shift gears. You kind of have to adapt in that direction. And and, and look, it's, yeah. it's a real – what a gift, right? What a gift to be able to read books and learn as part of your profession. Like, what a, what a gift that, you know, in a normal circumstances – when I was at the law firm, I used to spend so much time during the day 
reading the news and having thoughts and feelings and having no place to put them. And it wasn't monetized. It was just a thing that was making me bill fewer hours and frankly, getting me quarterly talking to's about what a terrible <laughs> lawyer I was. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so like on the flip side of it, it's like, it's what, what a gift. Like when I, I'm like, Oh no, I've got to read a, I've got to read, um, uh, what's his faces at the Atlantic. John Nichols new book by Friday. Like, yeah, it's like a little stressful, but also right. like, I want to read his book anyway. Like I would yeah. be doing that in my spare time. So yeah, it's, 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 it's pers- perspective. Like honestly, if the if the patron number stayed perfectly the same all the mm-hmm. time and never shifted, I would be a very happy person with nothing to complain about. Right. Like, given the cycle of like people dropping off at the end of every month and me feeling I feel like frantically trying to appeal to people to bring them back. And also I never have a sense of what patrons want. Like to me, it's right. so opaque. I'll put so much energy into doing one thing. No one gives a shit or they're all mad at me. And then I'll do some throwaway episode about nothing. And then and everybody it's like loves the biggest it. Thing. Yeah. I'm like, I just, I can't even like, why even try? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, it, it just speaks, I guess, to like the, <clears throat> the fact that even <clears throat> in trying to like establish a somewhat alternative um, space for talking about politics and like you're still you're still gonna be subject to a lot of the like um, external like just facts of life which are which are which boil down to these crap like algorithmic weird you know all the stuff that you're talking about with like chasing subscribers who are all of a sudden not subscribed anymore and that feeling of constant like instability and stuff and but it's uh, better than youtube people i mean the people who make money off of youtube subscription or or youtube clicks whoo that's real stressful because that's every video like i don't really care like my ego is hurt a little when the videos don't do well versus when they do do well but and then i and i use the videos to me i put stuff on youtube to advertise for the patreon right that's Mm -hmm. why they're there so if they do better then i'm happier and you see upticks like when I did like the Andrew Sullivan or Glenn, Glenn Lowry got a lot of new people. Mm, yeah. They tapped into a whole new audience. That was audience, a really good you know? interview. And I, I really enjoyed doing it. Yeah. But, um, you know, the people who make money off of YouTube are extremely stressed out because they're subject to an algorithm. Like the algorithm yeah. stuff doesn't really hurt me because that's not where I make my money. You know, that's not what right. keeps me employed. <clears throat> um, and they're looking at the numbers on every single video when they get demonetized because they used a clip that was copyrighted or they said the wrong curse word or whatever. Like that's a real mm-hmm. issue for them. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I think I need to start. I mean, I've had some conversations with some of these alternative companies, the rock mm-hmm. and even rumbles of the world. And I know there's a certain amount of stigma attached, but you know, you look at what's happened to, um, you know, RT and Abby Martin mm-hmm. and even the Hill. Yeah. You know, and it's hard not to want to have, you know, the security of going to a platform. Also, where you're not getting screwed over by these dumb YouTube algorithms. It would be wonderful to see everybody kind of go en masse elsewhere. Yeah. And and one other thing I'll say about this is I, I know there are efforts to, I think, you know, package some leftists together in a way that you could pay, you know, $10 instead of $5, but have access to a bunch of different people. Mm-hmm. You know, and I like that. I don't know if that's going to work, but yeah. I like the idea of that. And I'm curious what you guys think of it. You know, I think it's Rockfin who's kind of experimenting with that model where 
you would pay more. I don't know how many things you're subscribed to, but yeah. you would be able to basically, you know, say you really like me or really like Katie Hopper or really like whomever you would pay $10 for the, that subscription yeah. right? and you would get access to all of those patrons. Yeah. I, I I'll, I'll hang up in just a second. I just want to comment on that really quickly. I think that's a very interesting idea. I also think it's possible maybe, but, but maybe this would just end up turning into a similar situation as like with what happened with the intercept. Um, like, of course I, I kind of like cringe at the idea of like um, a super rich investor funding a platform to make it free for all users. But if there were some way to like have a large amount of money so that both content creators, political commentators could be compensated, but people could also be paying um, nothing or if not nothing, then like a fraction of even five or $10 Mm -hmm. um, to like support a large group of creators. But I don't really know how feasible it is. And even though I feel like the intercept for a long time was able to maintain a real sort of like adversarial integrity, um, obviously like it's gone it's reporting quality has gone down in the past few years, in my opinion. Since I Um, left, yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah, since you left, exactly. Just kidding. But but thank you anyway for taking my uh, call, Bree, and uh, it's always good to talk to you. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Zach. Um, I, I, I don't know a lot about the specifics of that, so I don't want to like be too out of pocket. But I do think that part of what the issue is the intercept. I know around the time I was leaving, there were you know there's pressure to um, Pierre Omidyar, you know, the agreement was that a bigger percentage of the of the intercept was going to be funded by listeners over time or re- readers over time, and he would like withdraw his, you know, be able to like withdraw withdraw this financial support as it had organic funding, and I know there was some tension between you know whether the magazine was really able to get that those kind of funding numbers at the rate that he wanted to withdraw financial support, you know, not totally, but like the percentage of the entire like payment base was supposed to be incrementally more and more independent from Pierre. And I don't know if there's any relationship between what people perceive to be differences in reporting then and now, and that is a consequence of it. But that's the problem with when you have a big investor, like if one day they decide that, or there was a standing agreement that they weren't going to contribute the same amount for all time. Well, it, it does like you can be the best person in the world. It's going to change your incentives. Like I, when I was at the intercept, like I only had to write like one article a week. I had time to think and breathe. That's like unheard of in media. People are out here being forced to write like four listicles a day, you know, and I had editorial responsibilities and it, it, it felt it was amazing. It was a really, it was like amazing. People cared about my ideas. We brainstormed things. It was very thoughtful, but that is not, the model that enables all of these other platforms to sustain. You got to be writing stuff that people click on. And there were so many people at the intercept that were so deeply invested in reporting on like foreign policy, Middle East conflict, like a lot of people in the newsroom who were really invested in that stuff. But as we've been talking about, people don't click on that stuff. People don't care. And it, it's not that people are waking up one day and saying, Oh, let's write, write uh, clickbait trash. It's that, it's like the, op- the the force between the options of like not existing anymore, writing clickbait trash. And 
figuring out the ethics of that and kind of how to extricate yourself from those incentives is really difficult. And I hope that we can talk as a kind of uh, journalist community about how to fix that rather than being, you know, kind of assuming that everybody is acting in bad faith because there aren't a lot of great options out there. And the vast majority of people are not lucky enough to have the platform that I had to have a subscriber base that I, that I have that I'm enormously grateful for. But I also look around and see all these amazing content creators. I see the people over at RBN. I see all these, you know, especially working class creators that don't get those same kind of opportunities and it sucks. And they're, they're doing all of this in their spare time after their full-time jobs. And they're doing an amazing job at it. And it's very time consuming. I just want to say to put together a show like Kyle's or Jimmy Dore's or Crystal's, whatever you think about them. I, I only, I only said Crystal last because she has more of a production team. Her and Sagar, I'm so impressed. They have like a real professional production team, like at the Hill. But you know, when you're just a person and you are like, like okay, I'm, I'm consuming all this stuff. I got to make the clips. I think Kyle probably has some people working for him at this point. But like, you gotta, you gotta. It takes time. You gotta watch the clip the first time. You gotta watch it back and identify the timestamps. You gotta, you know, cut the clips and export them to your hard drive. You gotta get them all into a folder in an organized way and have them queued up and ready to go to produce a show about them. All of that stuff. Like, you gotta watch ten times more things than the things you actually use to find the things you actually need. And then when you make your own content, you got to clip it up in 15,000 different ways. And so there's a lot of stuff that goes into it to produce like a show like Jimmy Dore's. I'm like a marvel, actually, at just the production value of a show like that. I would love to be sitting up there and have people feeding me clips and like go in a camera one, camera two. Like that is that is like amazing. And that stuff only exists because of the support of people like you. So on behalf of all of those people, to the extent that you like those people and all the other shows, uh, you know, the support really does really does matter. I'm over two hours now, so let me take one more. Uh, last time I did this, I did a little bit of like um, round robin taking questions. And I only didn't do that this time. And I've gone, you know, through the queue in order because it looked like not a lot of new people in the back of the queue. And sometimes like, I did it last time because I wanted to give new people who I hadn't talked to it an opportunity. And it looked like, you know, a lot of the people that I know in the back of the queue. But I think next time, no matter what, I'm going to. I'm going to jump around a little bit. So don't, don't be wary if I don't get to you uh, or if you're not in, in the queue immediately, I'm going to do it. I'm going to jump around. And also I want to say that there's a live chat now and I just discovered it and it's sweet. I'm very excited about live chat possibilities in this app. So thank you for all of you who have been playing with that today. And let's go to Jonathan. You were our last caller today. I am truly honored. <laughs> and oh, stop, yeah, like I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been mad like if you skipped over me because I did get to talk last time and and uh, I think the time before as well. So yeah, like it's, uh, but I loved that book, The Spoils of War, mm -hmm. and I was so delighted that you you had the author on. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I definitely loved about it was, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, maybe loved is the wrong word. It's, it, was, it was quite terrifying. But uh, it's like that guy Michael was saying that, you know, that you were talking to earlier, like everything is connected to everything else in so many ways that most people don't understand. And, you know, he kind of got into some of the things like, uh, you know, that... Uh, the way a lot of these defense contractors will use kind of um, 
race to the bottom politics between states to essentially go to federal legislators that represent their states and be like, say, that's a nice jobs program you got in your state. Be a shame if something happened to it. Mm -hmm. And they'll be like, sir, yes, sir. So there's money and there's also threats. There's Mm -hmm. carrot and stick. And that Mm -hmm. works on so many things. Like I was actually supposed to be a panelist on that uh, National Improved Medicare for All Summit that they had this past weekend. Mm -hmm. They still took some of my questions that I DM'd them. But, uh, you know, the healthcare industry does that too. Like that's everywhere. And, uh, you know, the other, the other thing I kind of wanted to bring up, you know, they kind of came out in that interview, really, I think even, uh, even Andrew was trying to tell you, like, you're, you're actually like farther ahead of the game than you think you are, because there is a brain rot in that, uh, kind of international relations community. Some of it that, you know, of the sort that even Josh and Dave would recognize Mm. and, like, I don't know what happened in that space that uh, that I saw you in earlier. I, was that the one you were referring to where some of the people were like, were yelling at you? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was but really like when you night. had, yeah, Dreams like there is, I took a few, <laughs> yeah, I took a few of those classes in, in college. And like, I remember just being disgusted, like, this is stupid. Like these people have brain rot. Uh, they think all kinds of like they, there's all these like tropes and cliches and just unrealistic assumptions that they make when talking about international relations and the way these conversations go in international relations spaces. It sounds like these people are playing a giant game of risk. Yes. And, uh, you know, you heard a lot of that come out in like the Matt Duss interview. Like he strikes me as a really good guy and a very intelligent guy. But I could hear in some of the some of the phrasings, some of the yeah. framings and some of the just the way he was thinking about this stuff that, you know, I'm like, oh, there's that brain rot that I that so disgusted me in those international relations classes in college. Yeah. And, I'm just you know, the fact starting... that... yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, oh, sorry. I was just saying, like you are like you came at this from a fresh perspective and already, you know, things most of those people don't like you dug deep. You ask deep questions of people that know. And you are way ahead of a lot of these people. I guarantee you they have not heard of half the stuff that you've been discussing. Well, I appreciate that because I'm almost, I know I need to go back and listen to that interview because that was the first one I did on the subject. And I was not as able to identify the contours of the debate as I would be today if we did it. And I'm sure would ask better questions and give better pushback. But it's confusing because I remember like before that interview, I talked to my brother about it because he's, you know, he went to one of those prestigious uh, international relations master's programs and has always been a big foreign policy guy. Obviously we grew up overseas. My mom worked for the UN. Like we have always, you know, I never really cared about that. I came, I was, my family jokes that we came back to the States and I went native and they look at me like I'm Ronald McDonald and they are still very much one foot in the world. Uh, But so I, you know, I, I asked my brother, like, what do you think? What's the deal? Give me some background, historical perspective. What's the conflict about? And we immediately got into a fight. <laughs> and like, I, I've joked on Twitter that my brother's a neoliberal, which he does not love, but there is this, there is this, like, it's weird. He, he was like triggered by me even like asking questions about NATO. And he is very, it, it, it was weird to have someone that you have so much simpatico with and who I obviously love very much. And, who I agree with about most things. I, I was like seeing this something there. And I talked to my mom about it because she's, you know, she worked, she's a psychologist, but she worked 
with a lot of the security members in the UN for like 17 years and was traveling to all of the places in George Afkazia and all of these places. She's been there and done that and has a, under, like a very personal working knowledge of what's going on in these regions. And she does not have the brain rot. She and I are much more aligned on this than her and my brother, but normally they're the ones with the foreign policy chops in the family. And it's really, really interesting to see these um, fault lines emerge because I don't, it's not like he's, my brother's not a bad faith actor. Do you know what I mean? But it really is, it does seem to be maybe a consequence of just the way he learned about these things. And it's fascinating versus the way that my mother and I learned about them. It's fascinating. Yeah. And that's, that's it. I think you nailed it right there. Like one of the things that had made me, uh, you know, so repulsed by like a lot of those, the, the international relations theory brain rot is the fact that I had done some traveling. And whenever I travel, I'm the sort of guy that likes to go native. Like mm-hmm. I like to find locals to take me around. I like to experience life as the locals do. And you start to realize like every other place in the world is just as complex, if not more so than the United States is. And it's very exotic to me to learn about all of the little nuances of these kinds of places. So your mother had spent time in Georgia and, you know, got to know all the, all the odds is in the Shfilis. Okay. Cause everybody's name ends with one of those two things in Georgia. And like, you start to realize when you hear these kinds of tropes on the news, like that's stupid. Like I've been there and it's not like that. It's a lot more complex. This is a really like, this is almost like a childlike uh, simplification of, uh, of other human beings. It's almost dehumanizing in a way. And like, that's one of the things that kind of impressed me in the Matt Dust interview. You could see your facial expressions change when you heard some of these things. You're like, that, that doesn't make any sense. But like you were, you were like, I mean, obviously like you didn't know enough to be like, I need to push back on this, but you're like, it didn't, it didn't compute right. Your brain wouldn't accept it. Yeah. This stuff about how this is all about like Putin being in his feelings. I mean, that, come on, that's just a mink. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Like, <laughs> you know, it can't just be yeah, they tried woke to up one day country. and said, oh, I really miss the USSR and we're going to do this now. Like, come on. Like, you have to be able to explain yeah. why now and not in 2014. Like, what are the circumstances that have changed? Why did Barack Obama react differently to the scenario when it was taking Crimea versus how we're reacting to it now? Like, you, I just, you know, I just make it make sense. That's all I'm saying. I'm not against you. I'm not like... I'm not in a posture of like thinking that you're a, a state department shill or whatever it is that people were hollering at that. But like, I just, I, I, it doesn't, you're right. Like it didn't, it didn't gel for me. And when I hear someone else's narrative and I know people have their criticisms, but when I hear like Aaron Mate speak, if there's like a, a cogent cogency and a clarity that like, I, it's, you know, even if there's stuff, some stuff around the edges, it, it, it's a, it's a narrative that makes sense to me. It's a it's a series of motivations, and that are, are making sense to me, and I and I'm happy to get the pushback. I'm happy. I'm really very much trying to get someone in dialogue with Aaron on the show. But I got to tell you, Aaron's down, but his critics so far have not been willing to come on and talk to him to his face. Which yeah, and like know. one of the things I appreciate about about Aaron is like you know the the fact that he is willing to challenge his own assumptions. And I think like the root of that kind of brain rot is that these people have been going about with these, uh, these assumptions that this kind of, uh, you know, the international relations theory will program into them. Like they never bothered to interrogate or question those assumptions. Like, am I sure that's right? 
They don't do that in those spaces at all. And in fact, they get, as you've seen, extremely defensive and like, uh, you know, belligerent. Uh, you know, they get this kind of, you know, it's almost like uh, you applied a hot brand to them. Mm-hmm. You know, if uh, if you start to be like, are you really sure that that's true? Yeah. And they're like, what do you mean? Are you, yes, of course not. No, they haven't bothered to interrogate it at all. Yeah. It's frustrating. You see these same patterns emerging. You know, we're talking about how to talk to liberals, how to talk. I mean, there is the same pattern of defensiveness. And maybe maybe Catherine Liu is right. The big problem is there's too much. There's too many PMCs, <laughs> too many positions of power. who have been too indoctrinated in all of these schools. And we should, we should just purge the PMC class. <laughs> You know, uh, so I, guilty as charged and my hand is raised, but maybe, maybe she's ultimately onto something there. Um, she raises some interesting points, that's for sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for weighing in, Jonathan. I appreciate you and all of your um, engagement online as well. You're such a lovely, good, you offer such good, good faith, measured, not nasty pushback to people on the internet. I see you out there and I really appreciate the tone that you strike. Well, I appreciate that you appreciate it. Your opinion means a lot to me. <laughs> All right. Take care, Jonathan. Um, I am going, I'm going to, um, in the, in, now that I raised Catherine Liu, and I know that we had it, this is like darkness and, you know, a little distressing. Um, so what I want to do is to let you guys know, I tweeted about this, but I did a series on the West Wing guys, the West Wing thing guys have been doing a series where they've had guests come on and watch the Hillary, um, uh, masterclass tapes, which are as wonderful as you're imagining that they are. And I went on with um, Katie Halper and did one, the last one in the series, but I went back and listened to the earlier ones. And yesterday I listened to the one with Catherine Liu and Amber Frost. And it was so hilarious. So good. I highly recommend it. And also obviously watch mine. But you guys know that like that's my favorite podcast to listen to, to to decompress. And I've been behind because I'm behind on the West Wing and I like to actually watch the episodes that they're talking about because I'm a weird freak. Uh, but these, you don't have to watch. I mean, you can if you want to pay for the master class, but you don't have to watch. They play the clips. And the analysis is so cutting and so good. Some of the best Hillary takes that I've ever heard. So strong recommend to decompress from all of this. Take care of yourselves. Keep the faith. And here's an, a song that's been keeping me going. Guaranteed endorphin high. I listened to it like five times in a row nonstop to do my two miles today. And I hope it offers you the same pickup that it offered me. Okay, that's the acoustic version, which is not what my plan was for this. (laughs) Um, Maybe we'll just go with it, though, because I don't know what else to do. No, here it is. Okay, no one cares about this intro. Oh, please, oh, please, am I lost or found? I'm getting sick of the ups and downs. No need to give me the run around. I'm out, I'm out. This shit's gonna kill me, but I won't let it. And I try to give them hell.
sick of the in-between Burning in places and interesting to me To me Am I good enough? Is the sky even at all or is it not? I'm checking the prices I'm giving up Now what? Now what? Change. It ain't ever gonna change. It ain't ever gonna change. 